0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Bombas, The Great Courses Plus, CW Hemp, Robin Hood, and our supporters at Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
1: Mott, Thanatos, Anku, Banshee, La Calavera Catrina, the Angel of Death, the Grim Reaper. All different names for a spiritual being whose presence signals the inevitable end that everyone who can hear my voice right now must eventually face. Around the world, these various personifications of death come in a wide variety of appearances. In Western culture, They wear a foreboding cloak that often conceals all of their features, with the possible exception of a skeletal hand or dark, empty skull hiding within the shadows of a deep cowl. Sometimes death carries an hourglass, the sand within marking the precious seconds of your life as they trickle down to the bottom. And other times he brings a frightening tool with him known as a scythe. It is with this that he reaps your soul from your body. The connection to agriculture is no coincidence. The Grim Reaper's scythe is the ultimate symbol of transition, thought to date back to at least 500 BCE. It is a tool to harvest what can grow no longer as the seasons change and fall and then winter approach. When you're young, death seems so far away that it's hard to imagine. But when you're older, you can feel the Grim Reaper lurking ever closer. Out of sight, but never far away. Waiting for that moment when your time is up.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this
1: is Forrest Burgess. There is a reaper whose name is Death, and with his sickle keen he reaps the bearded grain at a breath and the flowers that grow between. From the poem, The Reaper and the Flowers by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, first published 1839 in his collection of poetry entitled Voices of the Night. Join us tonight as we kick off
0: October of 2018 with a study on the Grim Reaper. And we're back. It's October, people. You know, whenever I use people at the end of a sentence like that, it's like Marie Mayhew is nodding approvingly from the wings. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? Because she always finishes sentences with people.
1: Oh, that's okay. You're right. Yes, <laughs> true. Uh, yeah. In, in and her, he, uh, her written uh, communications.
0: It, written and verbally. That's true. We truth. hung out with her. If, you, if <laughs> you don't know who Marie Mayhew is, she is a prominent member and longstanding member of the Astonishing Research Corps. And also she has her own podcast now called Whatever Remains. Check it out.
1: Yeah, it's really good. A lot of great detail. She has a great voice. I think the people thing comes from her having to whip a lot of people. People into shape, whether they want it or not. So our
0: Halloween hoodies, I mean, people are literally ordering them faster than we can print them. And yes, I did use literally correctly. Very good. I was going to ding you, but uh, I'll let this one go. All right. So here's the deal. We ordered an initial batch of blanks to print and they sold out in like a few hours. Those have all been printed and shipped out, but now we're holding on printing and taking pre-orders for the last batch of hoodies through October 9th of 2018. That's the Tuesday after this show drops. After that, the Halloween hoodies are Dunzos. On the morning of October 10th, we're going to tally up all the pre-orders and get those printed and shipped out. After that, the Halloween hoodie will be retired until at least 2019, if not indefinitely, depending on what we decide to do next year. So if you're listening now and you want one of these awesomely cool heavyweight zip-up hoodies that have already been described as soft and comfy by one of our listeners on Twitter, get over to astonishinglegends.com right now before midnight on October 9th and click on our store to
1: place your order. Well, supplies last. You've always wanted to say that. I say it all the time anyway, when you're you're not paying attention.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, by the way, we're also working on a special long-sleeve Halloween t-shirt with the jack-o'-lantern version of Astonishing Al, our logo on it. So if you miss the hoodie train, we'll have those t-shirts soon. Ah, very good. Well, should we talk about the October shows? (laughs) Yes. You know, we like to keep the topics close to the vest, but tonight's (laughs) show is the first of four different ones, with a new one coming out each week, a new topic each week, up until Halloween. The last show that will drop right before Halloween is going to be the one we've been hinting at for a while now. In the meanwhile, we'd like to thank our announcer, John Boland, for creating his special Halloween openings for us, as he did last year, and encourage everyone to embrace the macabre as we travel into the fall season and gleefully hurdle towards All Hallows' Eve and Dia de los Muertos. Please remember to support our sponsors during this busy time of year. Without them, there would be no Astonishing Legends. Oh, and stay tuned after the closing credits to hear Forrest read Longfellow's full poem, <laughs> The Reaper and the Flowers.
1: Oh, uh, well, first of all, good job in macabre. Thank you. And muertos. Do you have something about springing these poetry reads on me at the end of the show? Yeah. So I, we're really tired and, and we just want to go home. I just like to see the look on your face when you find out we're going to have to stay another 20 uh, minutes for you okay, to do that. Very good. Uh, well, I, I love delivering to the fans and uh if if they like it uh, you know if they're putting up with that or you could just turn off the show well we frankly. can't
0: tell you know that's why we can tell how many people download but we can't tell how many people turn it off before it gets to your poetry
1: uh, reading your poetry reading i should right. say right i'm just gonna guess more than we think they, they are yeah <laughs> that number's higher than what you think it is uh but anyway so where should we begin you know what actually i know where to start let's have you answer this question How do we get up into this mess again? (laughs) By mess, you mean a complex Uh, historical topic? A topic that was historical. All the things you hated about giants, (laughs) we're now doing. By the way,
0: I love giants. I just, when it's heavy research history, man, these shows are hard to pull off on a short
1: turnaround. Here's the thing. That topic is broad, I know, but it's specific in a way, you know what I'm saying? So I like those kind of topics in that, yes, all things big, all things giant. But when you drill down to it, like I said, when you get conspiratorial and the fun stuff to talk about, it's very specific because it's the giants that aren't supposed to exist. Well, so that's the nut of this one here. It's not a very broad topic. It's one name or one idea for the Grim Reaper, Reaper, but it also spans all of human history. Well, this is what
0: happened. My son and I were in the car. I was taking him to a karate lesson. And he heard me on the phone with you, and we had just done a kind of a schedule shift for October where it created the need for an additional show topic, and it kind of caught us off guard. Even though we had some things in development, we wanted mm-hmm. to do something. We felt like kicking October off with something decidedly Halloween-y, for lack of a better word. It, it um, is. And it is. Yeah, but that. also a little bit historical, and then we're going to slide down the hill of Freaky as we get closer to Halloween. My son overheard this, and is in the back uh. seat, he goes, Dad. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. He said why don't you do the Grim Reaper? He's nine years old, by the yeah. way. And I was like, okay. You know, I was like, actually, that's kind of a cool idea. And so then I ran it by Forrest, and Forrest yeah. was like, yeah, it sounds okay to me. And so <laughs> and next wish, thing you know, we yeah. we
1: got into it. And I'm regretting it. But but the <laughs> idea, though, is that, no, it is very iconic. So why not know all you can about it? Because it's such a iconic thing that I, I think most adults, at least in the Western world, because in this particular case, this visage of it is a Western concept. But of course, death is universal and everything alive will die. And so we all have a way to deal with that as humans. It's just a different icon. But in this case, the Grim Reaper, I say that, you have an image that pops into your head. And you know what's interesting
0: is, you know, we had talked a little bit about people's perception of it and why not start with a child? Because one of the things, you know, you had said you were curious about is what my son's impression of the Grim Reaper was. Yes, right. And so I I asked him, I said, how did you hear about the Grim Reaper? And he couldn't really tell me. He wasn't (laughs) sure. He just kind of knew about it, right. And I said, "What do you think of it?" You know he described to me, "Well, I think he's death, and he comes, and here's the problem, folks. His memory's a little bit tainted because I started to read to him a book that I should have not started reading to yeah. him until he was like five years old, or he should have just read it himself. I, uh-huh. I didn't remember it as being, I would say, late teen appropriate, but gave him some ideas. The book is called On a Pale Horse. It's
1: by Pierce Anthony. Yeah, good idea um, with that, because <laughs> he filled his head with nightmare juice. Well, I
0: remembered it from high school, uh-huh. and I didn't remember it as being all that scary. It was more fascinating about right. how death worked, and we'll talk about this when we get to the philosophy yes. of these different mm-hmm. personifications, but it gave my son some ideas. So he was like, well, I think he comes, you know, and every 100 years... There's, there's a new death comes along, and he, <laughs> when he shows up, he takes your soul, and then he looks at all your memories and decides whether you go to heaven or hell. Right. And then, so it's
1: the Santa Claus. Yeah, the Santa <laughs> Claus, him. yeah. And yeah.
0: I, I said, well, what's the uh, the scythe for? He didn't know what a scythe was. But I said, you know, what's the big thing? The and stick with like, the knife on it. And he said, to protect himself from attacks. And I was like, Oh. Okay. So <laughs> now he's a superhero. I was like, who's yeah. attacking him? And he goes, demons. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. So
1: yeah.
0: he's got his own idea about it. Everyone has their own idea about Yet. it. For him, it's a kind of a comic book hero. I did, the last question I asked him, which force you asked me to ask him right. was, did he believe in it? Did he
1: believe it was yes, he's real? he's scared of it. And he said yes to both those questions. mm mm-hmm. so. Okay, so all of those uh, answers, that mishmash there, that melange of uh, childhood logic yeah. mixed with poor parenting skills and, and exposing him to something he Thank should you. have been a teen for. No, it's <laughs> it's cool. No, when I was his age, I loved that stuff. And it just depends on, on your outlook when you're growing up. I think kids that are as clever as him and love this kind of stuff, why not do that? But maybe you should have explained it a little better in that the fact is... This points out what this episode is about, because you have an idea of a Grim Reaper as a character in your head. You know what it looks like. He does, your son. But do you know why it's there? Do you know what its reason is? And so what's interesting about your son's point of view is that it's a mishmash of essentially folklore, Of pop culture folklore. Yes. He's he's got this thing's fighting off. There's probably an adamantine shield he's using, and and, uh, there's superheroes and lasers, and he's fighting demons uh, that wear armor. You know, it's all this kind of crazy stuff he gets as a mishmash. But what's at the root of this? It's like what you said. Are you afraid of him? What does he do? Well, he brings death. What does a nine-year-old know about death? So what does an adult know about death? A lot of us are, are afraid of it and don't want to think about it because it is a big topic. It's universal. We all face it. So how do you deal with that? Well, you personify things like that, big concepts. And for him, it's a mishmash of <laughs> a superhero fighting ghosts. He probably uh, rides a, a space a jet ski of some kind. Yeah. Whatever it is, that's his world. That's how he knows these kind of supernatural or superpowered powered uh, beings operate beyond the human scope. Because for very young children, we'll talk about this towards the end, the concept of death and dying. For very young children, toddlers and when they can start to speak, death is kind of magical. It's not permanent. And that possibly you might be able to come back from death. It could be a temporary state. That's what they want to believe. Their world is still magical and based on magical thinking. As you well know, as a parent, children's logic often is. They haven't formed solid ideas because they're just not old enough to know that Mr. Whiskers not coming back. <laughs> no, he's gone. That's why we have a goldfish now or whatever it is. Yeah. But for adults, we face these same problems. And so that's what the Grim Reaper is. It's a result of wanting to know what death is. So as we go through this, we're going to see the different areas that this iconic figure represents and fulfills in our need for legend and lore, because it's very necessary as humans. That's how we get along and get through life. So here's what we're gonna do. First, we're gonna try and answer the question, what is the Grim Reaper? We'll go over some definitions and some traits. What, what does he it look like? exactly, yeah. and, and kind of reaffirm that. Yeah, because again, that's reaffirming some of the things we already think we know. But why does the Grim Reaper look that way? Why does he carry the things he does? And then we'll get into kind of the history You know, I I love history. Hopefully you do, too, if you're out there listening. I know a lot of people probably don't, but we're going to reel this thing back as far as we can, because I found that to be interesting, because, you know, when I was a kid, I thought the Grim Reaper, like, well, it's death, right? I mean, death is from the beginning of life. Long time ago. Start the clock at zero. That's when the Grim Reaper appears, right? Because we've always had death. Well, that character, that image is not actually that old. But its roots are timeless. It was just a different thing. So like I said, death has always been with us. And so we're going to go through the history from the beginning and then find out where these concepts of uh, myth and religion and lore mix with this modern day concept of what we just described. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit about modern day
0: encounters as well with the Grim Reaper. Here's the thing that fascinates me and and sprung into my head just when you were talking just now, Forrest. Mm -hmm. But when you think back to the the dawn of mankind, you have to realize that this idea of death, even before we had language, and if you're talking about the um, interspecies relationships that they've now proven that have happened with hominids and other homo sapiens, whenever the first human became kind of sentient, whoever, and started to think about how to use a tool or whatever, all the way back to then, they had to deal with death. Either they had to watch... Someone they knew, Mm -hmm. regardless of the nature of that relationship, die and try to figure it out from the get-go, from when we were first created, that's how long... We've been trying to grapple with, wait, what, why did that one stop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why did that one stop? Is that going to happen to me? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's I mean, amazing, wh- uh, you, know? you know? yes, Ugg uh, got gray and lived long time. The, yeah. uh, they're the guy, he's uh, dead at 29. We don't know why, but it's really sad. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's that thing where we all go at different times. And of course, the world was very dangerous. You bring up a good point, which I will now kind of jump to because I don't want to forget it and that death how we see it today is a lot different. It's been sanitized in a way. That's one of the points of a paper we're going to take a look at here later on, in that uh, death in the ancient pre-pottery Neolithic A, much before that, it was different. They handled it differently. It was was much more common back then. And it it happened sooner. It happened sooner. Uh, In a lot of cases, the world was so dangerous. Survival was so intense. Just every day was a challenge that death was always around. But people enjoyed their lives just as we do now. So as we learned about where everything's connected, at least the timeline of human history, what we found out with our show uh, and series on Gabekli Tepe is that death was much more in the house, shall we say. Same literally. Thing. Yeah. Well, were, with... saying, we're using literally a lot. Okay. Right. Same thing with Gitalhuyuk. Under the floor. Yeah. Gitalhuyuk. <laughs> they had death cults in that it's the way that they dealt with their deceased loved ones. They still loved their relatives, as we do, and their friends, and they cared for them. But the way they did it was different back then. And as we mentioned in that series, what's believed is that when the loved one or friend or the revered person in the community was, was dead, they would let the bones get stripped out in the field naturally. Shall we say? And then the bones were brought back inside, and a lot of times buried under the floor, under the flagstones or the um, the Roman type concrete, which we very much respect. It's not crude. We've had a lot of letters, I've seen people getting on us, like it's really actually pretty good. It's like, yes, we're saying that. We're just saying it's old. Yeah, just an old technique, but it's solid. It's fantastic. Yeah, for you Roman concrete lovers out there. <laughs> uh, the point was that uh, as we might have a painting of a loved one now or a picture, and we honor them certainly now it's snapshots and mementos, they used to keep a skull in the house of the deceased person and uh, would put clay around it, kind of like... A forensic artist. (laughs) That's exactly what that's like, and they would uh, creepily put seashells in the eyes, so the eyes look like little slits that were looking at you. Yeah. To them, that wasn't creepy. That's how they dealt with it, and that's how they remembered they're dead, and so it was very close. Nowadays, we want to be removed from that. The person is kind of processed. We still love them and we still honor them, but it's a different process today, much differently than even maybe you know 100, 200 years ago for our techniques and stuff. But since death has always been with us and we've always had to think about it and we have different ways of thinking, we think we're much more sophisticated and we are in certain ways, but death always eludes us. We can't see it. It's an invisible force. We can see the result of, you know, getting injured or disease or old age, and that result is that we just stop. But you don't see usually death coming in through the window as a fog and taking people. But sometimes maybe that happens. So to understand this idea, essentially what we can say in the Western world is that the Grim Reaper is the personification of death. So that means it's a form of anthropomorphism, or it's the attribution of human traits, emotions, or intentions to non-human entities. It's considered to be a fundamental tendency of human psychology. You know, So we can better wrap our heads around a concept like death. So yeah, death comes to all living things. It's an invisible force, so we desperately want to understand it. And if we can't escape it, Maybe by understanding it, we can either prolong its coming or feel better about what's going to happen to us. So, Scott, tell us what personification means, really. The dictionary
0: says personification is the attribution of human nature or character to animals, inanimate objects, or abstract notions, especially as a rhetorical figure, or concepts such as nations, emotions, and natural forces, such as seasons and weather, or in regards to tonight's topic, death. Also, an imaginary person or creature Mm -hmm. conceived or figured...
1: To represent a thing or abstraction like death. Yeah, right. So basically it's a hard to deal with kind of thing. Like, yeah, even weather, what makes the thunder? Well, it's got to be a dude, right? It's a thunder god. Yeah. Or it's God, or it's a thunder bird. Something's making that. It just doesn't happen. We got to point to some kind of creature. So that's what he's talking about here, is that it's a hard to grasp rhetorical figure, possibly or a bigger idea, but we give it a persona because what's the easiest thing for us to look at it and deal with on a daily basis? Each other, human beings. Yeah. And if you're going to tell a story or you want to
0: convey a message about death in some way to other people, whether it's oral tradition or later it's entertainment, such as a play or something like that, you need a personification that you can treat like a character to explain what has happened to a person who has died.
1: Yes, so we see this in like funeral art, which we again saw at Katulhuyuk, when they saw the the pictures of the stick people with the crows and all that. That's considered funerary art. It's a big deal in the human life. So that scene there is possibly representational of, of actually crows picking people apart, but also the spiritual ascension possibly, of the well, people that got picked apart and what happens to them. Right, so, and they thought yeah. that was all
0: related. For right. people who didn't catch our Gobekli Tepe series, what was fascinating about that is one of the things we talked about was them leaving the bones out or the bodies yep. out to be reduced to bone by right. nature, but there was another suggestion that the heads were left on at the tops of temples for yeah. birds to come and take away the flesh and what was left, and there's a, a belief that possibly they thought that was how a soul ascended to heaven. Right, it's a natural process. Yeah. And maybe
1: you stunt that. Or if, not heaven, I shouldn't say heaven, but just ascended. Because yeah, right, right. Into the other realm, right. Into yeah. the other realm of, of those concepts. But they had yep. those concepts, is that you yes. probably go somewhere else, right? You just don't go in the ground. Oh, well, It's funny, that's fashionable now for a lot of people. But uh, yeah. to them, it's like, that seems kind of sad. We're going to go with another realm. Yeah. <laughs> because we'd like to live on somewhere else where it's, uh, it's not as hard. Yeah. So you're actually taking uh, these human forms and characteristics of humans that we know so well. And you're applying that to abstract representations of a thing that you can't really, that it's hard to think about. So basically, that's what we're saying. It makes it easier to think about. A Grim Reaper figure makes death a little easier to understand. Yes. It's kind of like
0: life and the whole allegory or the idea or the legend of the stork bringing babies. We tell that story to help children understand where babies come from in the Western world or the U.S. We tell them that because they can understand that this real thing is bringing life. It comes from somewhere else, and it's brought by something. You can wrap your head around it. But what is the thing that actually brings death? Not from injury or old age or disease, but what does it look like? Well, as a personification, it looks like, again, in the Western world, the Grim Reaper. Right. It's something that actually
1: brings death, or it takes the dying away to another world. Okay, that's an important point because there's, as we saw in our research here, there's kind of two main functions of this Reaper dude, <laughs> and they're both very important. One, it seemed to me, I was formulating a really offhand kind of concept here, but it seems to me maybe the taking the dying away to the nether world is a much older concept. And those concepts and ideas have changed throughout time. So the Grim Reaper is an image that represents death as a being, a possibly once human form that is now a dark cloak-wearing skeleton, or a grim-looking man it could be, or something that has taken the form of a man. That's interesting, too, because it's not really a man, but maybe it once was. But what can we understand
0: an image of a man. Yeah. And the personification of death isn't always a man. Right. Sometimes it's a woman. That's true. Uh, for instance, in Slavic countries like Poland or Serbia, she's portrayed as female. Or in Mexico, she's La Catrina. Oh, very good. La Catrina. La yeah. Catrina. Yeah. So last week we talked about how amazing Bomba socks are. Not only because they make such a great product, but because they give a pair of socks away to those in need for every pair
1: sold. That they do. And you know what? That we did. Uh, but you know what else I remembered about them? What? They were on Shark Tank. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Well, the Sharks knew a good thing when they saw it. Great idea and a socially responsible company. Look, I've been wearing Bombas socks
0: every day since I got my first sample pair from them when they sponsored us. They've become like a seatbelt. I don't feel comfortable without (laughs) them now.
1: You're going with my uh, car analogy too, because to me, it's like a a brand new set of tires. Yes. They look great, they smell great, they make you feel great. Uh, (laughs) Well, Bombas socks were created for runners, power walkers, power loungers. That's us. Uh, That's true. Uh, Low-key fashionistas, snowboarders, business sharks, business casual sharks, people who prefer the outdoors, Netflix and chillers, and overall lovers of everyday comfort. It doesn't matter who
0: you are or what you do, Bomba socks are the best socks in the world you really can't go wrong with. It. Well, I, I will definitely agree with you on that. For once, we agree. Mm. Anyway, truth is, putting on a pair of Bomba socks is better than finding the cool side of the pillow in the middle of the night. It's one of those products that once you brought them into your life, you can't quite remember what life was like before you had them.
1: We're honestly both wearing Bombas socks every day now, and we know you'll like them too. So take advantage of this offer for our listeners today by getting 20% off your first order. That's right. Just go to
0: bombas.com slash A-L. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash A-L. And then enter the code A-L
1: at checkout. Throw a party for your feet and support the show by getting some outstanding new socks today when you visit bombas.com slash A L and use the code AL at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Hi, my name is Billy Sheehan. And when I'm getting elbow deep in a stack of dirty dishes at work, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Here's another thing. The Grim Reaper doesn't exactly have the same job or method in every case or every culture. It's very similar and here's the thing, there's a way of thinking about it, is that the Grim Reaper is like a six-pack Joe work-a-day guy. He yeah. He does one job. Like, I dude, I'm just here for the soul, so yeah. uh, I don't need to hear your sob story. He's a taxi
0: driver. Yeah, you're
1: coming <laughs> with me, that's all there is to it, that's it. Or it's something whose job it is to take you to the next place. So it's either one to of those two jobs. Switch. Yeah, but it's not always the same. So in the mythology of some cultures, the Grim Reaper actually causes the death of of the people whose time is up, which means he comes to collect them. So that's one aspect of the word. He's a reaper. He reaps them like a farmer collecting standing grain during a harvest. That's where that image comes from. So this harvesting- And the scythe,
0: which is my favorite part of this whole outfit, by the way. Yeah,
1: so essentially the grim reaper is a farmer. That is the theme and the uh, kind of the archetype there. He's coming to collect us like ripened grain at the end of our lives or whenever our time's up. To be harvested. And this harvesting theme is as old as, well, guess what? At least Gobekli Tepe. The birth of agrarian
0: culture, of agriculture, because it, it symbolizes... The end of the season, of the time that things are going to be growing, it's time for fall and winter, and death comes, and then the whole cycle starts again.
1: Oh yes, it's all about life. And as far as we know, that was the first organized gathering of grain. It is believed that we correctly tap it right. Yeah. Again, things have not been discovered yet in the whole region. So, einkorn was harvested off the nearby slopes. Remember that? Yes. It's a very fertile volcanic region, so it was a good place to grow that. But that was the first time, as we, as far as we know. I mean, people hunted and gathered. That's what that means. They gathered grains that were wild, berries, nuts, whatever they could find. But this is the first time they think where a large group needed to be sustained nutritionally. So it started to get organized. So that idea of like, oh, it's time to plant. Oh, it's time to water and care for it. Now it's time to harvest. That idea is as old as, uh, well, when that started to happen. But this idea, this picture that we have Again, I can just tell people Grim Reaper. You got a picture in your head right now. I know it. Yeah. Generally, unless you, don't I see look at a anything. bunch of
0: them. I a lot of more often than not, I see <laughs> right.
1: the Peter Jackson special
0: effects from the Frighteners. Oh yeah, yeah. That no, one freaked me it's, out. It's, it's all throughout
1: everything. It's just the flying, it's, yeah. you know, and like the Wraiths and Lord the of the Rings. rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Harry Potter. That's all based on that same imagery. But what's interesting is it may not be that old, really. That kind of thing. I mean, what we'll see here tonight is that certainly all these elements are as old as anything. Clothing, it's it's as old as clothing. Robes, black robes. Certainly skeletons from the beginning of time. Tools, there's a point where tools were flint and uh, napped. So that has a starting date as well. So most of these elements can be very old, but this particular one of this Grim Reaper, it may not be that old. Now, here's the interesting thing. In other mythologies, the Grim Reaper acts as a psychopomp, and this is a very important secondary angle. That is from the Greek word psychopompos, I think, literally meaning the guide of souls. The Grim Reaper figure or psychopomp doesn't actually cause the death of people or really cut them down like stalks of grain, the psychopomp acts like a guide, unhooking the human soul from the body and acting as an escort to the afterlife. And they don't act as a judge, like what your son believes, which I right. th- I, I, I found that interesting. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he judges them right there on the spot, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't has... know where
0: he got that from, by the way. That is yeah. definitely not in the one chapter of On a Pale Horse I
1: read right. <laughs> It's but... come, Again, it's part of the zeitgeist. He got it from somewhere. Yeah. Well, in this aspect, they don't act as a judge of the person or choose when or how they will die. They just show up once the death of the person has occurred and lead them to another realm. Yeah. Again, that's the the work of day, Joe. I'm here to just take you. It's like, dude, just don't argue with me. We're going here next. Yeah, I've got this receipt right here. (laughs) Yeah. Your number 4732. It's your time. Your time is up, buddy. (laughs) And that joke is done kind of a lot because it's such a functional thing and there's so many, he's busy all day. Yeah. But that is one of the aspects where it's really just a singular function, but that may not always be the case. Well, the psychopomp can be depicted as a spirit or a deity
0: or an animal with anthropomorphic or human-like qualities, especially in legendary fables. In funerary art, these psychopomps could be depicted as various animals like dogs, deers, horses, or birds like owls or ravens. And with birds, they often show up in large numbers, foretelling a death or waiting for someone to die. A
1: murder of crows, anybody? Oh, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Have you ever seen or been outside when suddenly like 200 oh, crows yeah. show up? And it's... Oh, not crows. Other birds. I have
0: not witnessed oh, really? a murder
1: of crows. Back when I had a uh, you know flip phone, there was a murder of crows that just show up outside of my apartment on the phone lines, on the electrical lines. And I got to tell you, it's unnerving. Well, you know, they live to like 30 or 40. You know, we follow on Twitter. We follow
0: the Raven Master at the Tower of London. Oh, that's right. Yes, Which uh, is pretty amazing, by the way. You should check that out. He he posts some great pictures. So I haven't seen A Murder of Crows, but you know, Mm -hmm. we do get here in the San Fernando Valley. And I don't remember if I've ever talked about this on the show, but a long time ago, there was some kind of theme park here that closed down. Oh, right. Yes. uh, And there were parrots there and they escaped into the wild and they have bred. And Mm -hmm. there's now like a hundred of them. And once or twice a year, I
1: do get a murder of parrots. (laughs) Yeah. And you can always tell they're here because
0: they're super loud. They're super loud. But it's not scary at all.
1: No. Well, no, no. That's (laughs) that's more noisy and annoying and they're funny. And that's the difference just perception-wise of how we view parrots versus ravens or crows. But when you go outside, I can certainly understand why people have reverence for it, because they're eyeballing you, man. There's something there that gets your attention, unlike a parrot staring at you, yeah. which <laughs> we think are kind of funny and, and they're they're kind of comical and clown-like. And once again, well, I love to bring these things back around again. Where have we seen that before? As we just kind of mentioned here, I'm not saying Catalhuyuk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. He didn't yeah. want to jump in there. And say yeah. Yeah. I like I, how you got the little dots over the O's here. In That's Earth. called cut and paste. I, I figured out how to, I was typing it so much. Same thing with Göbekli Tepe. Yeah. Uh, but that series now, once again, it's taught by scholars that the ravens or crows were featured in their death cult mythology. And I know death cult sounds really weird, but it's a methodology of what they practiced once you die, because it wasn't just random, like, hey, throw the guy in the field, see what happens. No, they had a process and they followed it. But to kind of recap here, maybe the idea was that the ravens and vultures were stripping the corpses of the dead clean of flesh. So they were like real animal psychopomps, perhaps, because both spiritually and physically, they were carrying the flesh off to another world. And then pooping it out on your freshly washed car. (laughs) Or I guess your Fred Flintstone-like car. Whatever it was. But right on the animal hide ragtop. we all up in the same place. We all end up as refuse. My point is that it's not just sticking you in the ground to a molder. Other animals are ingesting you, stripping you clean, because they wanted to deal with the bones, these death cults. You don't want to deal with, well, essentially a rotting corpse. I know that's pretty rough, but... Once the bones were clean, pick clean, by nature, then you dealt with the bones. Well, these animal psychopomps, I would suggest, are helping you in this transition. They are carrying off your flesh. The flesh is what we see every day. That's what we love about people. You love to hug uh, mom and dad and grandma, not a skeleton. So again, this is all metaphorical, I think, you know, even for the people of the time, but it's a special process to them. So that's why I made the point that it is perhaps to them Kind of an animal psychopomp with maybe animal hybrid human features. Maybe an early form of Grim Reaper. They harvested you. Well, and
0: something that I think about when I think about those robes and the way it's depicted now, and they're flying... And the idea of the Banshee, which is another form that the Grim Reaper takes, a female form that it takes with the screaming and the... Right. All of that does seem like it ties back to a DNA or an ideological DNA that Mm -hmm. might connect to ravens or birds flying through the sky and all... Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, anything that flies is revered because we can't do that uh, naturally. So they occupy a place, again, that's closer to the heavens, to the stars, the magical realms... We've always revered birds. That's part of it; they're kind of magical in that way. But yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And as Scott said earlier, this thing benefits from having a body and legends and storytelling. See, it's much more interesting to be talking about a mysterious and deathlike figure that has a form rather than just as a concept. It's not that fun to talk about our big existential concepts, right? It's not so. Although we're historian. trying to make it that way. Uh, well, it is. We're trying to. <laughs> we're trying to uh, hammer that one home because well, this is how we deal with it. We give it a look. We give it a visage. And I do love to say that. So an anthropomorphized animal or spirit or deity or just a scary cloaked humanoid that can talk and interact with the characters of a story just makes for a better story. However, as with the spirit of Christmas past or most more modern representations of some kind of grim reaper, they just point their bony skeletal finger at you and don't say a word. Oh, as we said, with the spirit of Christmas past, remember Dickens? Yeah, yeah. It is, it was to tell me, blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't say anything. That's even worse. I think it's way scarier, you know, talking about literary devices. It's great because you're begging and pleading for answers. You're not getting any. That happened to me in a haunted house once. <sighs> and it has stuck with me my whole really? life.
0: Yeah, I was at the uh, at the North Carolina State Fair in Raleigh, North Carolina. And there was this <laughs> haunted house you would walk through. And I remember when in this one room, it was pitch black. And all I could see was like the end of a cigarette, like somebody was smoking, but there was no cigarette smoke, but there was like an orange, little orange glowing light. And I don't know if that person had night vision or what, but when you would try to go around it, it would just move in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) And you couldn't see anything. It was so dark, you couldn't see the door. And eventually I got out. I don't remember how, but that one trip through that haunted house, that moment has stuck with me my whole life. You're doing that thing, especially when you're a kid, trying to talk to it, trying to reason with it, trying to, can I, I just trying to, that's real scary. I want to leave now. And just nothing, never said anything. And then I think it just went out and then I was allowed to leave. The bargain. It's the
1: bargain. And what are one of the steps of the acceptance of death or that process? One of the stages is bargaining. Please, can I just, I can get a little more time, please? Yeah. So you get nothing, no bargaining. And if we can bargain, that makes us feel like we have some control. We have maybe some options, which makes us feel better.
0: And as for acceptance, it might seem that if the legend being told is that of a grim reaper that cuts you down and actually takes your life, in some fables, the soon-to-be-departed can sometimes trick the Grim Reaper That's right. out of taking them, or bribe their way out of death, hence the term cheating death.
1: All right, so now it's time to answer the question, what does the Grim Reaper look like? You know, unless you haven't been looking at any media for the last hundred years. It's an image we should all be familiar with, and there's a few people out there, I think, who may have seen it in real life. Just as you're probably picturing, there's a long, dark, hooded robe. Monk's robe, you think? A monk's robe, yeah. yeah exactly. exactly. Next to the story we just did it's on the Black Monk of Pontifract. So there was an unexpected tie-in. I don't think your son thought about that. He was just thinking of characters. Well, and uh, But again, it's always a dark, long robe. Uh, robes are just scary. This one has a cowl as well, like a monk's robe. There's something that must obscure the head. For uh, those of you that
0: are Patreon members, thank you very, very much. And those of you that aren't, I did want to reiterate that we have a full, nearly hour-long interview with the current caretaker of 30 East Drive and Pontefract. And here's something very interesting. Uh, the interview's transcribed as well because she has a very thick accent, but it's it's worth reading. Get the transcription and you can listen to the interview if you become a patron. But I just wanted to quickly point out, since the monk came up just now... That one of the things that she mentioned was this really old book from 1906 called The Chronicles of Old Pontefract, where she insisted that there was mention, even though when we did the story and and most of the other authors who talked about it said there was no evidence of black monks in the Pontefract area. She indicated that this book from 1906 did say something about it. And I can confirm because we have received a copy of it. And I did find a reference to the black friars of Pontefract. So it's it's a fascinating interview. Check out the transcript. You have to join Patreon to see it, but it's available to everyone from the $1 a month and up pledge level. So check it out.
1: That was a good update there because, uh, As we've read the literature, there were authors who disagreed with her, saying, well, there's no trace of that. And we came across that repeatedly in our own research, but Carol seems to be right. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up and actually getting the book there. So coming back to
0: the fact that he does seem to wear, the Reaper does, or the Angel of Death, does seem to
1: wear what looks like a monk's robe. Because again, robes are just scary, and that image continues on to this day when movies are trying to scare you think about scream yeah well that's where they got that but it's that long twisted you know screaming face right it's the grim reaper meets uh, edvard monk it is <laughs> exactly yeah. it's a melty face there where the long drawn out mouth but that's the reason is that it's a grotesque it's trying to uh scare you with its distorted image but why do you wear the robe because it conceals and when we can't find out or don't know who that is or what it is underneath there it adds to the fear. So that's part of the scary image aspect of that. But again, it's like with the hood... We're seeing uh, bad guys now out there on the news yeah. always wearing a hoodie. Yes. Except for our hoodie, which... Uh, I just got you, mine. You
0: just got- I had to order it, but it was just the easiest way to get it. And I got it today. <laughs> it I'm looks wearing fantastic. Our new it's,
1: it's quite comfortable. Very fetching, very uh, comfy, cozy, and please do not, again, commit crimes in it. Uh, okay, getting back to the face of this thing, though, because that's one of the few things that people with this image and who have reported to have seen this thing will tell you is that it's a skeletal face or it's a very gaunt-looking man. It doesn't have to be a, a skeleton face. That's probably the most common part of that image. But it's also been described as, we'll see later, almost like a dead guy. Uh, yeah. Very pale, All the colors gaunt. run out. Yeah. yeah. Like they're dead, essentially. And that's the idea is that that white face, which I don't know which would be scarier, seeing a skull face or a human-type face that's just decomposing. But I never bought into that uh, skeleton face as a kid as talking to you because, you know, no lips or tongue. So how's it going (laughs) to, how's it really going to say anything? Unless the scarier option is that it's reading your thoughts and communicating with you through its mind. Well, in your mind. Also, the skeleton that doesn't speak to you is probably actually scarier than one that does. Well, actually, both are scary. (laughs) One that's (laughs) talking to you or not talking to you. But I think thematically, maybe it's scarier if it doesn't talk to you, because uh, if it's going to cart you off or just kill you on the spot and then cart you off. You have questions. You have a lot of questions. Well, my first question for
0: a skeleton with no flesh on it is, how is it standing up? <laughs>
1: That's exactly- or isn't it just fault? You yes. ever remembered
0: Larson, the cartoonist? And millennials might not remember him. Hilarious. Look him up. I've got his uh, anthology book. It's- uh, Or two of them, actually. It's yeah. amazing. The Boneless Chicken Ranch. Remember right. that? It's just like little pieces <laughs> floppy of floppy chickens, floppy chickens everywhere. Yeah, How right. does a skeleton stand up
1: with no muscles or? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the opposite, but that's kind of the same thing uh, I was talking about with uh, something speaking to you as a kid. I never got that logic because it's uh, it ain't got no lips or tongue or lungs to make the breath to speak. And so I thought like, well, that's silly. I can't talk to you. I didn't really think about it speaking into your mind. Yeah. I didn't consider that, which is even scarier because that means it can also read your thoughts. And uh, that's not being silly. There are people who have met, claim to have met spiritual entities that had that power, that knew their thoughts. But you know what skeletons would be really bad at? Yeah. Beatboxing. (laughs) And there's again that, or it's a very (laughs) light beat, uh, not even a breathy sound. You
0: would just be like, are you even doing anything?
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And another thing that didn't make sense to me is even at a young age i knew that to move your bones you need sinew you need tendons and uh, ligaments in this instance though that's also what's scary is a lot of times the other physical aspect of the grim reaper is that you see bony skeletal hands yeah it doesn't have to be actual skeleton bones like your hands but it could be again white decaying flesh that's bony just long bony fingers pointing at you or to uh the place you're supposed to go think about this in uh dickens a christmas carol the ghost of christmas future he's not speaking or christmas yet to come yeah exactly but ebenezer's got a lot of questions for him Spirit, is this where I'm going? You know, and there's, he's just kind of pointing and he's showing him things, which again, that's kind of scary and uh, just remarkable piece of uh, ghost story writing there. Yeah, he was a pretty good writer. Exactly. But I think maybe the creepiest thing that I find with this description, a lot of the times are the eyes. And there's two prevailing that I saw descriptions of the eyes, either dark, black, black eyed kids, kind of black. Whirlpools. Whirlpools of black soulless tar swirling around, or the fiery red glowing eyes, which are nearly ubiquitous. Pervasive. Exactly. So I don't know, we've speculated on this before. The literary references would say, well, it's a window to uh, the soul, or in this case, no soul, your soul going to hell. Because it's the fires, you're seeing the fires of hell. Yeah, them. and not to continuously call back to the Black Monk of Pontifract,
0: but if yeah. you looked at the picture that we posted, we used on social media, yeah. the picture of the thing in the doorway in yeah. the upstairs bedroom, and then you look on the wall, there's another thing, humanoid thing, with two glowing red eyes. Now, it's not in a robe or a habit, I'm not
1: saying it's the Grim Reaper, but right. I'm saying it's a shadow, yet it has glowing red eyes. Well, I think we mentioned this. Maybe we didn't get to it. We sent that photo to uh, a couple of mediums, and uh, one had said that there are a couple of entities there, one being a woman, one being... Oh, we did mention this, I think, on the show. There's another one there that's more male, but not completely, like either it was a very bad person in real life or it's something that's kind of subhuman. She, I think she uh, said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) that one was a real jerk. Yeah, in real life. Yeah, (laughs) it's something bad about it, but there are two orangey looking eyes, which you will not see on the website. We'd had to take that photo and, and thanks to them. You we, can see them, but You it's, can see them a little, but, but we, we I bumped did... up the uh, brightness on that. Yeah, in Lightroom. And right. It, they came out a little more, yeah. And that's what you see. So anyway, again, we've talked about that before. Uh, it goes
0: to the Mothman. It goes to yeah, uh, sightings
1: on Skinwalker Ranch. It goes to all kinds of stuff. Everything. Eyes shine. Uh, so don't shine a flashlight on the Grim Reaper. Doesn't need it. His eyes will shine back red or orange, fiery, glowing orbs that scare the crap out of you. So, and the other thing that's kind of a prop with the Grim Reaper that you see a lot is the scythe, or I guess you could say it's a sickle, but I think those are smaller. Those are hand, yes. hand size. Uh, the, yeah. A sickle is like you see on the Russian flag. The scythe yes, is the right.
0: big farm tool, right. really, that predates mechanized agricultural equipment. I am proud to say that I own a real scythe, <laughs> an antique scythe <laughs> wow. that I bought yeah. at an antique Sort of flea market type thing in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And when I saw right. it, I was like, oh, I got to have this. And it's got a big, long, rusty blade on it and the curved wooden handle and the handle in the front so that you can grab it. It's the coolest thing I've, I've got. I would yeah. like to say I've had it for years and years and years and nothing bad has befallen me. So I'm, I don't think it's an ha- a haunted object. Right. <laughs> right. But it's cool. It's crazy
1: to hold it. What's interesting about the shape of the tool, it's not a straight stick is right. that it's curved in order to maximize uh, ergonomic principles you know where the handle's placed so it's kind of big and heavy but you have a big heavy job right you're taking down a lot of grain in one uh, swath which is symbolic again of taking down a lot of people at once human beings reaping their souls so yes. that's why he's not using a sickle by hand Takes too long. He's right. got a better tool for that. But that's a common prop here with this particular Grim Reaper image, and uh, the other one is the hourglass. A lot of times you'll see it holding an hourglass, and of course that means sands are running out on the hourglass of your life, pal. Better do whatever you're going to do probably in the next few seconds because you only got a few grains left. What's also interesting about this hourglass, which some will say was borrowed from icons of Greek and Roman paganism is that you can flip the hourglass upside down and it starts over again. Yes. So not like the Grim Reaper is going to do that for you, although we'll get to that thematically. Sometimes, as we said before, you can maybe cheat death. You can avoid it. Sometimes it's not your time to go. And then your hourglass gets refilled with a little more sand. It gets flipped over for a moment. Right. But I see it also as when it gets flipped over, that's the cycle of life. And if you believe in past lives and reincarnation, maybe you get another turn on that. But for right now, when you see the guy, he's holding the hourglass, your time's about up. Well, and when you think about it, you know,
0: specifically we mentioned earlier, we talked about fictionalization or relaying this personification of death so that you can have it be like a character in an Mm -hmm. allegory or a story or uh, some sort of representation of behavior. I remember, for example, the hourglass that the Wicked Witch of the West had. And yeah, remember yeah, she yeah. turned that over in that iconic moment, and it's right. just all of that, and the grains of sand running out, and there's just nothing you can do about it. But you're right, you can flip it back over. Yeah. And the other thing that's always interested me about hourglasses is that on their side, they look like the symbol for infinity.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. Good. Yeah. yeah, pointing that out. It's kind of that section where uh, things get pinched off or flip over in that loop of time there. But it's as old as Roman and Greek paganism traditions. Reminiscent of slogans back then and through the Middle Ages, such as Remember Death, Memento Mori, or All is Vanity. Your idea that you are powerful and and freewheeling here in this world is vanity. We all meet the same end, and it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. Death is around every corner, and you better spend your life well and repent. Otherwise, you're going to spend an eternity of damnation. So that's kind of the message that's, I think, with the hourglass symbolism there. And Christianity had come in and replaced paganism, but like everything else, like, like our holidays, like Halloween, like Christmas, there are elements that survive because at some point, we've talked about this before, Christianity can't turn the tide totally and make people forget. And so it's kind of a compromise, like, well, we'll let you keep a few things. As long as you buy into the main principles, we'll let you keep a few things that have stuck and are pervasive, and so some of this imagery that we'll see here is exactly that. It's lasted from pagan times, and of course there's a lot of neo-pagans now. So in being uh, more descriptive
0: about the scythe here, we actually got this from this really cool website called symboldictionary.net. They had a really great webpage on this, and I want to read this little section here about the scythe. In ancient times, the emblem of the god Saturn, Kronos to the Greeks, was the scythe. Which represented the nature of the cycles of time. The side symbolized not only impermanence, all living things will be cut down, but the nature of the life cycle. Plants must die to feed animals, and the tool of the harvest depicts the necessity of death for the renewal of life. Thus, death was depicted as a natural part of the passage of time. The image of Kronos devouring his children seems macabre, but illustrates that the Greeks believed the passage of time is so inevitable that even the gods were consumed by it. I love that passage. No, This page is so well
1: written. It's very (laughs) cool. That's a very well written entry, but it hits on a lot of these recurring themes, which is the cycle of life, birth, death, renewal, which is the cycle of agriculture. That's how that works. You sow, you reap, and all that. So that's going to keep coming up again. And getting back to the hourglass, the entry goes on to talk about that as well, that the hourglass is a promise of resurrection. It is symbolism that has not been lost on everyone throughout the ages. These emblems later became symbols of resurrection to the Freemasons and Rosicrucians. And those ideas are coming from their ancient traditions. So this stuff has you know, a lot of impactful meaning. And now today it's a cartoon. Yeah. That's every every pop culture image we see now. A lot of them have roots that are ancient and meaningful. And sometimes those two things, you know what they mean, sort of, I think, if you see the side, you get the idea that it's a weapon, but, uh, you know, uh, like your son, it's a weapon for fighting off, uh, demons and (laughs) (laughs) Skeletor Yeah, or Skeletor is using it to fight off He-Man. Something's happening with that, which is kind of like a sword fight. Those ideas are kind of lost on them, as we said before, but, uh, you know, you, you kind of get the idea as an adult what's happening here. All right, so we've described the image, the modern day image of this Grim Reaper, which is so iconic. Again, we probably didn't have to explain that to you, but it's a good refresher. But was it always like that? Was the Grim Reaper that version of it? Was it something else back in ancient times, in olden days? What did it look like? Because again, death has been around us for a long, long time since the beginning. But what image was used to be the personification of death? So what we're asking here is, what is the history of the Grim Reaper? What is this history of this iconic image? So why don't you start off explaining what the idea was in the ancient times?
0: Well, we talked about the psychopomp earlier, and the idea of the psychopomp, or the guides to the afterlife, may have started with the first religious practices. Like, if you look at the temple at Gebekli Tepe, Çatalhöyük, mm-hmm. with its death cults, so I said it right, mm-hmm. the research <laughs> the research and conclusions by Andrew Collins, who wrote the book that we referred to on the Black Monk of Pontefract, if you go that route, that might indicate that these pre-pottery Neolithic peoples had an idea of heaven in the stars or to some other realm. And the shaman, and maybe an anthropomorphic psychopomp animal-based guide, could help your transition
1: through the holes in the pillar. Yeah, remember that? We talked about those. It seemed like those were meant to be crawled through. Like yes. a birth or your transition. It was into a birth another, canal. Yeah, and right. in
0: one of the, at Quebec Tepe, there was even the one that actually, and I think we talked about this, it looked like a birth canal. It yeah. had woman's legs. And That's everything. right. Yeah. And when you think about the alignment of the other holes that take you to the Great Rift. That's right. The stars the the Milky star, Way. Yeah. The stars
1: lined up. So the stars lined it, up. Yeah. And they also
0: said that that was like an alligator or a crocodile right. that was consuming. So all this stuff. Is happening. Mm -hmm. So that might be what, you know, one of those animals might help your transition. Uh, Maybe, maybe the first cities in Mesopotamia, uh, but certainly
1: in ancient Egypt and possibly Sumer. That's right. But this is all way, way before the image of the Grim Reaper we now have in our heads. Well, you know, at least in the U.S. and, you know, the Western world here, which I think is more of a Grim Reaper that cuts us down and maybe comes to actually take our lives rather than merely be a guide, which is the psychopop. So maybe that's why we're all mostly afraid of that image. He's not here to guide. He's here to take. Yeah,
0: those are two very different things.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean, both have an inevitability to them. Right. That
0: inevitability of death is sobering, but there's a difference between, oh, I'm going to die, mm-hmm. or that dude's going to help me. Right. Oh, I'm going to die.
1: That dude's going to kill me. <laughs> that's yeah, that's another point I was trying to hammer home here as we get through this is that it's really two different ways of looking at it. Well, I guess if, if after he kills you, if he points at you or touches you and you die instantly, it's has got to take you somewhere, it just can't leave you on the street. But the other way of looking at it is the psychopomp, and that is more ancient from at least from my research here is that that is the older idea. And just being the guide, as we mentioned before, that's a lot more soothing. And so the ancient world and a lot of these ancient cultures, the reaper or a psychopomp wasn't such a bad guy. You will learn things you could never have imagined. You will see sights you've never seen. And you will visit worlds where you've never been and expand the limits of your mind. All with the Great wait, Courses Plus. Wait, 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 wait. What are you, why are you using your movie trailer <laughs> voice? <laughs> oh, I'm just getting in the dramatic Halloween spirit, you know, and learning about ancient myths of the underworld In our latest lecture series. Over
0: at the Great Courses Plus. Yes. Kind of uncanny that our subject tonight has to do with the underworld and ancient ideas about death. And that just so happens to be covered in this latest series, Great Mythologies of the World. Yeah, funny how that happens. Well, tell us something germane to tonight's show. Well, when it comes to ancient Egyptian gods and mythology associated with death in the underworld, there are two that are significant, Osiris and Ra. Now, Osiris was chopped up by his brother, Set, but Osiris' consort and sister, go check out this lecture series if you're curious, wink, wink, (laughs) Isis put most of his pieces back together and he was resurrected. But even though he came back to life, he never loses that association. And therefore, he's primarily known as the god of the underworld. The dead were associated with the west where the sun set each day.
1: Yeah, that's right. And later era mythologies have the god Ra going nightly to the underworld to meet with Osiris. Ra travels from the west, uh, the region where the sun sets, to the east, where the sun rises and a new day begins. And his meeting with Osiris guarantees the rising of the sun. Ra also battles each night with Apep, the giant snake god who sleeps coiled just below the horizon. Apep represents chaos and each night Ra defeats Apep, guaranteeing the triumph of order over chaos in the coming day. I just
0: love learning about this stuff and now our listeners can too with this special limited time offer. A full
1: month of unlimited access is yours for free to check out this or any other fantastic course, but you must go through our special URL. You can explore entire worlds of learning, free
0: and unlimited for a whole month by signing up today at the Great Courses Plus.
1: .com/legends. Remember, that's the great plus dot com slash legends Hi, I'm Luke from the band Hearts Like Lions, and when we're driving from show to show across country, you know I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
0: All right, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the Middle Eastern traditions that are associated with death or the personification of death. Yeah, the ancient origins of this idea. Because it goes way back. So, of course, we're back in Mesopotamia. After that region developed, other areas in the Middle East grew and developed their own distinct mythic traditions, but with some borrowing from each other in theme and style. For example, the Canaanites from the ancient Levant region in Mesopotamia in the early Bronze Age had Mot as their god of death in the underworld. So that's their personification. Yeah. He, he actually was the first one we mentioned in the cold open. El was the king of their gods and Mot was considered a son. Mot was also the name of a Phoenician god of death. A variation of Mot later became Maweth in Judaism as a personification
1: of the angel of death or of the devil. Yeah, the angel of the Lord, or the angel of death, uh, does a lot of smiting in the Bible, if you're <laughs> familiar at all with the uh, Judeo-Christian Bible. I thought it was an interesting concept when you take a look at it, because, and I've always thought this too, God is not actually doing the killing in a large number or swath. He has a henchman, <laughs> which is yes. this angel of death. There's an instrument, there's a being that carries this out for him that is almost kind of separate in a way, and you'll see that come up a lot. But yes, tons of smiting, whole swaths of people being cut down for some purpose. And in the Bible, Shachath or the destroyer, is the one who smites the firstborn of Egypt in the Passover story. And God prevents the angel of death from entering houses with lamb's blood on the lintel and sideposts, if you know that Passover story. So that's not God doing that because obviously he gave the instruction to go do this. He wouldn't need to do that. As that old uh, phrase, God knows whose are his, there's instructions that have to be given to this angel of death, which seems like another agent that is separate. Again, it's like a not totally mindless because it's an angel, but it is separate and has a separate job from what God is doing. He gets sent on these missions to see this out. So for example, in book two of Samuel, chapter 24, verse 16, It states, But when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. So he's giving instructions to this other agent of death, an angel or the destroyer. King David sees the angel of the Lord in Book 1 of Chronicles Chapter 21, verse 15. And King David sees the angel of the Lord between the earth and the heaven. Having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, kind of like a scythe. Right. Except this time, a scythe, he's using a, this heavenly sword to cut down huge swaths of people. Yes. Uh, and also in Jerusalem, the destroying angel, Malach Ha Mashit, brings death. Memitim is an overall term for destroyers in the book of Job, chapter 33, verse 22. And the angel Azrael is sometimes also called the angel of death. Yes, and because it's so fun to read from the book of Revelation. It
0: is. Tess actually found this from Revelation, book 6, verses 1 through 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, death is the only one explicitly named. The description of it being pale also seems to suggest
1: a deathly visage and perhaps skeletal. Well, the reason we're mentioning all these Bible passages is that, of course, at this time leading up to present day, but greatly influencing the Western tradition is this Bible and these passages and this imagery that it presents. So that's painting a picture here from these biblical times to the Middle Ages to the present day. That's the journey we're taking you on now. So this is all to say and perhaps suggest that with the prevalence of the Bible in Western culture, this archetype of the angel of death or the angel of the Lord as a destroyer might have influenced this image and lore of a grim reaper. There's a sword or something like a scythe that is used to mow down people, robes, Again, with the robes, always with the robes, you got robes, but I'm making a joke here. But the idea is that angelic and I guess iconic creatures, beings, angelic to monks, things demonic or uh, devils, that's the easiest form to cover is you're not going to see a shirt and pants unless it's a skinwalker and then it's a hawaiian shirt and chinos it's not hawaiian it's (laughs) check well that was the one story you go with your story i'm going with a hawaiian shirt from old navy it wasn't hawaiian it's red checkered like a tablecloth at a pizza hut which you can also get at old navy yeah Uh, my point here is that as an archetypical image from the ancient world uh yeah it's robes requires the least amount of tailoring but when they're black and there's a hood it can be kind of scary So that's my idea. It's the simplest form of clothing. And there is one job with the angel of death or the angel of the Lord that brings death or the grim reaper. It's to bring death as an act in itself. It is the Lord who does the judging and the conveyance to heaven or another realm, except if it's the psychopomp. But the angel of the Lord does that. You know what I'm saying? They don't judge you on the spot. The judgment's been already made. So if you see him, it's over. Let's talk a little bit about ancient Greek myth and how it relates to the personification of death. Right, because a lot of that starts there as well.
0: Yes. So in ancient Greek mythology and religion is the god Thanatos, one of the children of Nyx, the goddess and personification of night. Now, Thanatos had a twin, Hypnos,
1: the god of sleep. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, I've been hypnotized. I've been hypnotized. Yeah, Marissa Ball from The Art came up with a lot of uh, good articles for this one, too, as she always does. But this one is from an article called Personification of Death as Seen in Adjective Checklist Descriptions Among Funeral Service and University Students. (laughs) Get a long title there. Yes. By F. Jonathan Bassett and John E. Williams. It is from a journal called Omega, the Journal of Death and Dying, issue number 45. The ancient Greeks' rather benign personification of death as the god Thanatos, who was the twin of Hypnos and the god of sleep, was consistent with Platonic philosophy, which viewed death as a mild event in which the soul shed its corporal shell. So what's interesting there, which paints a different light from what we have ended up with here, you know, the Grim Reaper being in scary. Times, yeah. Exactly. Is that this personification of death is actually pretty mild. It's not scary per se. We all die anyway, we know that, and this is a helper of sorts. Yes. So that was their attitude. I think it's interesting to point that out because how this has changed over the centuries, over the eons here is that this idea has not always been a bony skeleton scaring the crap out of you. Sometimes it's a helper, at least in mythology here.
0: Now, Thanatos, led by Hermes here, is the Psychopompos, and he leads Thanatos along with the shade of the deceased to the nearer shore of the River Styx. From there, the boatman... Charon. Charon, which is also the name of the largest natural satellite or moon of the dwarf planet Pluto. Yeah, remember we talked about that before. Yes, Yes. (laughs) Charon, the boatman, charges a reasonable price, which is very nice of him, to take the shade of the person to
1: Hades where the dead reside in the underworld. One, like you said, it's a reasonable price because you're dead. Where are yeah. going to get... Uh, <laughs> if
0: you didn't me, bring it with you, no, what do you think? you're going to have to do some busking or something. Well, it's Albert Brooks
1: yeah. in uh, Defending Your Life where he's still out of it from his car crash. Yes. And he tries to give a guy a tip. And the guy's like, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> he's reaching into his robe for money. He's like, "Yeah, that's no, no, okay. You don't have that. I think part of the myth story here is that if you don't have money, you have to wander the uh, the way station there for 100 years. Yeah. You don't have any money. So I think putting coins over the dead person's eyes...
0: Yes. That's exactly right. We talked about that. Yeah. And also, I think that ties back to the tradition of leaving money on headstones, too, in cemeteries. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. there you go. All very similar. So symbolic. that the departed can cross the River Styx. Right.
1: Well, keep in mind, dear listener, that water and underground water especially will play a significant part in the theories of our upcoming Halloween show. Just a little teaser there. Yeah. Well, Hecate was another example of a psychopomp. The Roman god Mercury and the Etruscan deity Vanth are also psychopomps, and I think it was uh, in Clash of the Titans. That title keeps coming up, I apologize, but uh, Karen the Boatman is depicted as a Grim Reaper type. I just remember as a kid, like, his bony yeah. skeletal hand opens up, and you put the coin the in. The first
0: Clash of the Titans, by the way. That's We're right. not talking about that remake. No, 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 that's Harry Hamlin,
1: yeah. Yes. So, but that was interesting that that's borrowed, but he's never really described that way in the classic writings. The first century Roman poet Virgil describes him in the Aeneid, book six, as just a sordid, dirty, greasy, belted guy. There Karen stands, who rules the dreary coast, a sordid god. Down from his hairy chin, a length of beard descends, uncombed, unclean, his eyes like hollow furnaces on fire. A girdle foul with grease binds his obscene attire. I thought that middle line there, his eyes, hollow, furnaces on fire. Again, classic, with the fiery red eyes. Yeah, tells you something about the Mothman. Well, yeah, it's all this is all tied in. Are we getting these visions from this ancient stuff? Or are they getting it from real life, from the other side, from the underworld? Yeah. Is there a reason that people from all walks of life,
0: millennia apart, are describing the same things over and over? That's Because right. I'm betting that not everyone who's seen the Mothman knows a freaking thing about Charon.
1: <laughs> and I'm not saying that they're uneducated, no, no, no. but exactly. what I'm saying is yeah.
0: you have to look for this kind of information. Right. And so if you're a historian who studied history in school... And then you saw the Mothman, or you saw the thing with the red eyes. Why is everyone seeing the thing with the red eyes? Just, you know, it's interesting
1: if you believe any of this at all. Yeah, you're right. It's baked into our DNA for whatever reason. These images, these concepts, these possible sightings since way back when. And another one, listen to this, talk about scary. Uh, Among the other children of Nyx are Thanatos' sisters, the Charis... Blood-drinking, vengeful spirits of violent or untimely death, portrayed as fanged and taloned with bloody garments. So a lot scarier. So what does that sound like, vampires? So now it's time to talk about, it seems
0: like we've mentioned it a lot of times over the years, thanks to the Great Courses Plus, <laughs> the, great the, courses uh, plus. the
1: Etruscans, yeah. and Roman mythology. Well, one thing I learned from going through the courses, as you did as well, is that the Etruscan myths were blended kind of with the Greeks, and heavily influenced the Romans. A lot of things that people think are Roman are actually Etruscan. And uh, I get to use the word autochthonous because the Etruscans believe they popped up out of the ground. Yeah. Uh, Just right there. (laughs) So anyway, the Etruscan myths are much like most of the Mediterranean ideas about the afterlife, that it was a eternity of relaxing, easy pleasure, their stories about passing into the afterlife were also kind of easy and interesting, peaceful, full of contentment. Just sitting it, around just, playing Xbox. Well, you got to take a break, man. You had a hard life. You know, your reward is that you get to go to this other land. And usually they thought it was uh, geographical, you know, and, and again, mixed in with the Greek myths and influencing Roman myths. This all in turn influenced heavily Western world mythos. That's why we're bringing it up here, is that there's a through line to all this. I think that's what I saw in all this research. Yeah. There's a formation of ideas lasting thousands of years to where we get to now. That's the point I'm making. Sorry to spoil it. Because these have changed due to the culture and the climate and the wars that were happening, as we'll see here with the Etruscans. It starts off very pleasant and cheery that, The afterlife is a geographical area specifically that was bordered by water. Yes. And as we'll see with our tiptoeing into the spirit world, water always plays a big factor, Missouri River. (laughs) Uh, There's something about water. You have to cross it. So that's part of the journey here. Now, uh, rivers commonly define the edges of afterlife spaces. So these paradises that you had to get to after you died, were bordered by water. So uh, just like the four that define the edges of the Garden of Eden or the five rivers of the Greek underworld, it's all the same. Yeah, uh, You have to cross- And uh, they keep looking for those rivers. I was just watching a right. show. I can't yeah, remember yeah. the show
0: I was watching. It, it might've been One on Earth, which I love that show. It's yeah. all just like satellite imagery analyzed. And they're looking, you know, still trying to figure out where the Garden of Eden was, and they're looking for those rivers, and some right. of them have dried up or shifted. But now, with the advanced photography they're getting from satellites, they're
1: able to see where rivers used to be for the yeah. first time. It's That's, pretty fascinating. Well, it's it's yeah. a confirmation in a way. It's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, but the Etruscans, what they had in common with the ancient Sumerians was that they envisioned something grander than just crossing a river. Their journey to the afterlife involved a uh, travel over land and water across the sea to an island paradise. And to accomplish this journey, we get back to the idea of a psychopomp. And in Greek, it's called a hippocampus. So unlike the Greek heroes who, uh, in myth, traveled there instantaneously, smoothly into the afterlife upon death, the Etruscans, you needed to travel on the back of a a sea monster. (laughs) Okay. And in Greek, it's, it's called a hippocampus. In art, it looks like that mishmash animal you know, that we've talked about before, chimera-ish, a fish's body, a horse's head. Sometimes the neck also had a dorsal fin mane, Uh just a freaky animal. But you had to ride that animal over water, do a little uh, combat. Once you got to the land, you were victorious. Men and women also in this mythos, I believe, had to travel on this animal slightly different ways. But anyway, the hippocampus is a necessary beast to use as a conveyance. A guide to get across the sea and the land, but it's not really a guide. In Etruscan belief, that guide is a spirit called Vanth, and it's pictured as this beautiful winged female creature. It's a minor deity, but it's kind of dressed as you see the funerary art where she's depicted. She's got boots, I think. She's got a short tunic, so she's ready to go. She's yeah. ready to take you on your journey. Again, this is the pleasant aspect of this. Like, oh, well, she's kind of fetching. I will, uh, <laughs> I will go with her. Her boots are made for walking. That's right. And uh, so it's not scary. She's there to guide you because if you didn't have her, it would be scary. You're wandering around in a wasteland yeah. in the underworld. So that's her purpose is to carry a torch, light the way, and lead souls to the afterlife. And in some of the art that you see from these Etruscan ruins, she is kind of standing beside a door, which acts and represents a barrier from this world to the next. So, you know, again, going back to that very important idea of the portal, the door, the passageway. That's her job. She's going to lead you
0: through. Just this last little section here is reminding me a whole lot of the new Mad Max movie. Yeah. Fury and Furiosa's journey.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, she leads him through
0: the yeah. underworld in a
1: sense. Uh, she's, and then they go through tough. that
0: path and then the,
1: the narrow canyon and the. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting symbolism in that film. I know it's a lot of explosions and a lot of fun cars that we like to watch flip over and stuff, but there's a lot going on in it. I'll just say that. Yeah. But this changes this kind of fun. Nah, I wouldn't say it's fun. You I mean you're, you're dying, but yeah. <laughs> but the more pleasant imagery of the beautiful winged goddess Vanth taking you on this journey, and it's like, well, I'm dead. Well, show me to the good life, beautiful goddess. It starts to change around the fourth century B.C., and it is thought this is reflecting of the Etruscans uh, losing a lot of battles, having problems with the Romans. Life was getting tougher. They suffered a lot of defeats. Their culture is being subsumed. And times were not great. So the picture of the afterlife and death in this process gets gloomier. Yeah. Some might say more grim. But that's the point I'm trying to make here is that changes with the times, this culture, this idea, because uh, that's getting to what we see in the Middle Ages here. This character of the Grim Reaper adapts and changes to the culture and the times and whatever's happening to the people. It's a
0: representation of the collective consciousness and where it's at at that moment for a particular culture. Right. And it might be isolated to that culture, but in another way, because if another culture is having a lot of success, but generally in warfare, both sides are not necessarily having a great time. So it's pervasive, this idea of this grim, darker character coming through. Well,
1: there's another, you know, like Chiron, there's another creature, I guess, being, underworld being, minor deity, in the Etruscan pantheon here, and it's K. and he is not benign. He is not uh, beautiful. He's kind of a big, ugly thug. He's got a short tunic. Uh, He's scraggly. He's got a club or a very large hammer, it seems. His face is hideous, and the idea here, though, is he's either throwing you through the door or keeping things out. Either way, keeping the horrible things out from the underworld, from coming into ours. And so you start to see the change in idea, you know what I'm saying? It's getting scarier. That's my point, is that as times change, things get scarier. So now we're to the era in human history where a lot of people think, and uh, some scholars, uh, some writers, authors, believe that the Grim Reaper idea, more of what we see now today, this is where it's germinating. This is where it's incubating. We have all these ancient myths from the ancient world that are more of a guide taking you somewhere. And now, things are going to get really tough for humanity. We're going to see a lot of death. Why? Because it's the Middle Ages, and it's the emergence of the Black Death. And here is where we start to actually have better imagery, more artwork, more literary sources that survive, that tell us about this. And that's kind of where we're starting to see what this character is, and where it emerges, and why. So we've talked about this before in our ads, actually, for The Great Courses Plus. A great one that covers the whole era and uh, has a lot of great, really fascinating information is called The Black Death, The World's Most Devastating Plague. And that's taught by one of my favorite professors over there, Professor Dorsey Armstrong, PhD. Very knowledgeable about medieval history and literature. So, Scott, why don't you set us up about what's going to happen to Europe here in the era of uh, the Great Pestilence?
0: All right, well, so with the worldwide plagues that made death such a constant, daily, and devastating companion, the people started seeing him everywhere, and he started showing up in art, music, literature, everywhere that people thought to record
1: and commemorate the near-ending of the world. Yeah, I just want to be clear here. We're not talking about the image of the Grim Reapers. You see him today— This is very generally a personification of death. Yes. And uh, it's the skeleton.
0: Right. So he needed a face. He needed a, a visage so that people could make a connection to a being or a visible force they could recognize, rather than something invisible, like a disease, which you can imagine how frightening that was, that brought a horrible death to almost every other person in Europe. Yeah, you can And see, when I say every yeah. other person, I mean half of the population.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. They think up to half. They're not real sure, but yeah. uh, imagine just looking down your block in your neighborhood and every other person you see- died yeah, and everyone and so, on the other side of the street exactly well the scary part are the symptoms with the plague basically you're liquefying and you can see that you didn't see the cause what's causing this that's what's scary they yeah, weren't you can't really tell sure. where it's coming from no. it's,
0: and that's what's scary about it right, Yeah, exactly right.
1: they kind of knew that it was coming from the east from asia by the trade routes but they didn't know how to stop it either that's also scary So the first recorded worldwide epidemic of a plague would be the
0: Plague of Justinian, so named after Justinian I, also traditionally known as Justinian the Great Mm -hmm. and also Saint Justinian the Great in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He lived uh, circa 482 to 565 current era. Now, Justinian I was the Eastern Roman Emperor from 527 to 565. The Plague of Justinian lasted from 541 to 542 and was a pandemic that devastated the Eastern Roman or the Byzantine Empire, and its capital, Constantinople, was (laughs) hit especially hard. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the deadliest plagues in history. It killed an estimated 25 to 50 million people in the 200 years where it was flared up. That would be equivalent to 13 to 26% of the world's population at the time of the first outbreak. Now, 600 years after the last outbreak of Justinian's plague, the Black Death would again ravage Europe and parts of Western Asia, changing the course of cultures, society, and history forever. Justinian himself contracted the plague, but he survived, you could say, cheating the Grim Reaper, Mm -hmm. although he comes for emperors and paupers alike. Mm. In every era of a plague to the people of that time, it must have truly seemed
1: like the world. Was ending. Yeah, just imagine that. What are we doing? God's wiping us out. That's yeah. what's happening. We're all going to die. Most terrifying. Well,
0: that's what we talk about now, or, you know, the scientists talk about now is another possible mass extinction. That's yeah. what it's going to look like.
1: Yeah, it must have been terrifying, demoralizing, like you can't imagine, and therefore running wild in people's imaginations. So that, of course, springs forth in art and literature and the chronicles of the time what was going on, because it was unbelievable. In late January 1348 in Florence, Italy, stories were starting to come out of Sicily that there was some kind of horrible disease. And by mid-February of that year, now lots of people are getting very sick and dying. So the course that we're mentioning here at the top, The Great Courses Plus Lecture Series, The Black Death, The World's Most Devastating Plague, Professor Armstrong is doing a really good job describing just the mindset here. Because imagine this, public spaces that in January of that year which you may have met friends for a cappuccino or something great meeting places were now stinking mass graves by march yeah in one month bodies were piling up it was pretty much like I like said monty pythons bring out your dead it was that horrible uh, boccaccio the author of the decameron recorded that bodies were literally stacked two three or more deep on these shelves called beers, where they would stack up bodies and and, uh, didn't even have time or the resources to make everyone a coffin. And there wasn't enough consecrated ground to bury them all in. Imagine that. You can't just go bury somebody out in a field. It has to be blessed, consecrated ground. So churchyards. So what they were doing is that they were digging mass trenches in all the churchyards, and daily, constant arrivals were being stacked up by the hundreds. It was described uh, by Boccaccio as like tier upon tier of ship's cargo people being stacked. Each layer of bodies were covered with thin soil until the trench was filled to the top. And for about a decade in the middle of the 14th century, the plague made its way westward and, as we said, killed an estimated one-third to one-half of this medieval world. Of course, when we were starting this episode, I remember you—you were talking to me about a story. I think it was
0: something that you had heard on one of Jim Harold's shows. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. It's. Did uh, you find the source for that? No, I.
1: It was. I love that story though. Yeah. It was a while back. I think it was. And We should have asked Jim, but we're not sure. He's not going to remember. remember. No, of course not. He he doesn't. (laughs) I asked him something uh, about the Black Eyed Kids. He's like, "Come on, dude. Yeah." Like that was a thousand shows (laughs) ago. But the story I believe I heard from an author somewhere thought it was Jim's show is that there were reports, and of course, Professor Armstrong would give me a side glance and roll her eyes at me if i brought this up i'm sure <laughs> that there were reports unsubstantiated that people would see a figure at the edge of town robed a dark clad figure waving a scythe or some kind of stick in the air they didn't know what he was doing he just showed up at the edge of town or the edge of the village next couple of days plague yeah the idea being is that is this some kind of biological attack of some kind of a supernatural nature? What's going on here? Why did this guy show up? He's waving the scythe, boom! We're all sick. Half of us are dead. Is that where this image starts to form? I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, totally unsubstantiated. I have no idea. No, but no but then you getting at like yeah. into this and you know whole like sci-fi thing. It reminds me a
0: little bit of the beginning of Prometheus, or just this right. idea of this thing that is uh, immortal. But then if you look at it even more practically, is it spreading something that's weaponized? Is it spiritually weaponized? There's all kinds of crazy directions you can go with No, but that
1: ties back to an idea of an angel of death. Yes. uh, Waving some kind of weapon over a large number of people, and then they just fall down. Yes. Uh, So here's something that Marissa found. It's a really good paper. We're going to uh, reference this a little bit here and there by Kristen Moore. It's called The Grim Reaper, Working Stiff, The Man, The Myth, The Everyday. It's an electronic thesis dissertation. I think published from Bowling Green State University in 2006. But it makes some interesting points in that she's taken a look at this idea of the Grim Reaper as we see it's being formulated here, coming, we think, from the Middle Ages and Western Europe. And here's one passage she says, You know, in much of the breadth of 15th and 16th century representations of the dance of death, the dead, not death, are leading the dancing. Death serves not so much as a leader or even an active participant as he serves to accompany the skeletons, of the dead. It is perhaps fitting then that death is often shown with an instrument. So that's what we see here. Grateful (laughs) dead. Yeah, boy, there's some kind of Celtic tradition there. I I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, I just know that we could win that mirror at a carnival (laughs) if you were skilled. The idea here is that you see in a lot of medieval art is that it's not the reaper yet, but it is that skeleton. But it's not the same thing. It is skeletons you'll see intermingled holding hands with regular everyday people from the three tiers of medieval society, which is the three tiers are you either fought, you were uh, in the military, which included a lot of the nobility, you prayed, you were a member of the clergy, or you were a peasant, a serf, you did the work, those are the three classes, and people danced with death with this skeleton from all three classes, didn't matter who you were, and that's what the art depicts. So now we're seeing how it got from the plague, how it's getting closer to what it is
0: today and what we know as it is today. And one of the things that you think about when society goes through something as crazy as the Black Death is you think about that's going to get expressed in art. And of course, yeah. And so I want to read this passage here that Marissa Ball found in the Astonishing Research Corps or the ARC from a book entitled The Encyclopedia of Death and the Human Experience, Volume 1. This was published by Sage and written by Clifton Bryant. This came out in 2009. During the Middle Ages, images of the dance macabre and images of death attended several purposes to include assisting and encouraging people to manifest and share their grief, to remember that death is not only unavoidable, but also the great equalizer, calling the high and the mighty as well as the humble, and to provide the opportunity for indirect control. When vulnerable mortals could paint, describe, and perform the dance macabre, they earn a subtle but perceptible sense of control. Well, there you go. Yeah. So it, it helps them reel back in that control that they lost right. when they were losing all their loved ones
1: and people were uncontrollably dying. Right. It's like the memento morium that goes back to the Romans. These ideas didn't start here in the Middle Ages. Kind of like the Grim Reaper didn't start with Bill and Ted's... Uh, <laughs> Bogus adventure. Yeah, it was the second one. Okay, right. I uh, still remember
0: his poem: "Whether you're a king or a street sweeper, sooner or later, you
1: dance with the reaper." Yeah, that's probably not original. I'm sure that uh, no, but uh, I mean, you know, it's pretty good. And, yeah, no, that's the point though. Is that these ideas kind of morph into this that Momentum Mori, the idea that we must all die, everything's a vanity. So don't forget that. That's a call to live a good life before you are passed on from judgment from the on high. Don't do it then, do it now. It's coming for us. So be decent, be a good person. But what's interesting is that these visual uh, themes, again, didn't start with the Middle Ages. They might've been present before, but one popular one was the three living meet the three dead. And that is part of the larger memento mori tradition. So it's an allegory and it's both in text and it's in visual images. It existed before the great pestilence. But the idea is that the most popular version of that is that there's like a, a three people, like a pope, an emperor, and a king depicted, and there are three skeletons. The message is that you may be alive now, but someday you'll be dead like us, just like everybody else, doesn't matter who you are. And it's shocking to see a skeleton that's claiming like, yeah, you buddy, me right here. Mm -hmm. Decayed flesh, just bone right now. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Very nice. Well, the most popular of these representations of death coming out of the, the great pestilence, the Black Death, as you said, was the Dance Macabre, or the Dance of Death. And the earliest use of that term that can be found comes from a Frenchman named Jean Lefebvre, who used it in a poem that was composed in 1376. And uh, Lefebvre was himself recovering from the plague. So a lot of time to write. Probably had a really bad Febvre too. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Dead jokes. He's rolling his bones, uh, his, his skeletons rolling over in his grave about to haunt you tonight. But that theme the dance macabre got very popular. was very widespread because it represented and encapsulated an idea for this whole horrible era that was happening to everybody. But the idea was not scary at that point. It was a dance, is that everyone will dance with death. And in woodcuts and paintings, it's showing dancing with either the living or other skeletons very joyfully. I'm still thinking there's a lot of Grateful Dead stuff tied in here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there, there's, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I don't know more about that. I'm sure it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's dancing skeletons. I, it, yeah, it, you know, no, no, it, I'm sure that's where that comes from. It, Dia de Muertos as well, it's all, it all seems good. What I'm saying is that you have a relationship with death. It's going to come for you. It's the great equalizer. You don't need to be afraid of it. What you need to be afraid of is being a jerk in life and then having that pop up on you at the last minute because you weren't prepared, you didn't live a good life, you're not going to the good place. So here's another interesting variation on this medieval art happening around the Great Pestilence coming out of it. It's a variation on this idea of the dance macabre. And this variation thematically was called the triumph of death. Not human triumph over death. This is actually death as a concept, a personification that is going to battle, waging war on humanity, and of course winning. You cannot defeat it taking down whole towns, villages, entire populations of people. It's an allegorical struggle of life and death and depicted as actual warfare. And in this imagery, you'll see a lot in medieval paintings is that, uh, yeah, death is scary now. Now we're seeing a scare. It's not dancing around. You're not having fun going to the afterlife in the last dance. It's war and we're all going to lose at some point and it's taking us all down and that is a interesting development because again now we're getting to more scary ideas of this reaper hey how's your shoulder been feeling in kempo class
0: you know what it's a ton better but it is still flaring up from time to time when i exercise i gotta say though i have found something that's been helping it out a ton oh what's that Charlotte's Web Broad
1: Spectrum Hemp Extract Oil. Oh, yeah. You know, I've read a lot about them, actually. Their oil is supposed to help with exercise-induced inflammation. Well, for me, it does. My left
0: shoulder is in a good spot. It feels good most of the time. But when I push it in Kempo, my recovery time is longer than I like. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract Oil does an amazing job of helping my
1: body recover from the inflammation in my shoulder. Hey, that's great, man. The thing I remember reading about Charlotte's Web is how their namesake, Charlotte, was introduced to their products when she was just five. And now she's a thriving third grader. That's right. You might have a lot of questions about hemp extract
0: and how CBD works and what its various wellness benefits are. And if so, just research it on your own. You'll be surprised. My uncle's an ex-football player. And when I told him about Charlotte's Web, he got some of their hemp extract oil and immediately started using it. He said he's sleeping more soundly and doesn't notice some of the things that have been keeping him up at night. Charlotte's
1: Web Hemp Extract is sustainably farmed, U.S.-grown hemp with no pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides, and it helps support sleep cycles and achieve a sense of calm and focus. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is
0: not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease. That's right. But I wouldn't have said yes to being sponsored by these guys if I hadn't used their hemp extract to soothe my shoulder. It's a great company, and their origin story, which you can research online, tells you everything you need
1: to know about them. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract, either in oils, capsules, or their balm, is a simple way to upgrade your day. And Charlotte's Web is offering a unique offer to our
0: listeners. Go to cwhemp.com and enter code AL at checkout to get 10% off your order. Don't forget to enter code AL at checkout to get 10% off. Some exclusions apply. See their website for details. Forrest, did you know that the legendary crusader for justice, Robin Hood, may have just been a name that a bunch of different outlaws gave to remain anonymous? No,
1: but that doesn't surprise me. Reminds me of what we learned about Jesse James. You know, On top of that, Robin Hood supposedly spent a lot of time in the Pontifract area. Once again, proving everything is connected.
0: Mm. It turns out Robinhood may have been more of an idea than a person, but did you know there's a modern day company called Robinhood that lets you buy and sell stocks, exchange traded funds, options, and cryptos, all commission free.
1: So you can buy and sell those and all that other stuff
0: with no commission through Robinhood, right? That's right. Robinhood strives to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Now I've been intimidated by the stock market in the past, but the Robinhood app is so easy to use even a podcast host can do it. <laughs> Their interface has a great design that helps you easily digest data and fully understand what you're investing in.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. As if folks couldn't tell, I love information. The more the better, and it has to be presented in a way that I can wrap my head around it. Robinhood has got that part of the equation down. Man, I'll never forget
0: when an old boss of mine bought a ton of Apple stock a long time ago. I knew it was probably a great investment, but mm. it didn't matter because I couldn't access the stock market in any way, and and also I was broke. But but if Robinhood <laughs> had been been around back then, even I might have gotten a chance to make some really
1: significant investments, especially since they don't charge you one red cent to make a trade. Commission-free trades allow you to trade stocks and keep all of your profits. And with the Robinhood app, you can place a trade with just four taps on your smartphone. You can learn by doing. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed and custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving our listeners a free stock
0: like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at legends.robinhood.com. Again, that's
1: legends.robinhood.com. Yeah, check it out today. Sign up at legends.robinhood.com. Hi, I'm Luke. And I'm Billy. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Bridges. Now back to the show. Okay, so now we're coming into the modern era here, leaving the Middle Ages behind. But we're seeing that there has been an evolution of this idea of a personification of death, from a dancing skeleton to a warrior to what we see now today. So how did that really happen? Well... My point about this whole journey we've been on here is that it has been an evolution, but elements of that psychopomp guiding, some of it being a scary thing that kills you instantly, those have survived throughout the ages. But this evolution, what it's done is that it has now taken on a visual aspect and has come to rest of what we think today is the Grim Reaper something test noted here? Is that if you look at the dictionary, the phrase Grim Reaper came into common use sometime between 1847 and 1915, depending on which dictionary you like. And uh, that's not all that old, no, that's like yesterday, <laughs> right? So it's right around the corner there, right? So, where does this current image end up? You know, we haven't really nailed it down to the first instance, but we have a pretty good idea where this iconic imagery of the, uh, again, as we said at the top of the show, the long, dark robe, the cloak, the hood, the scythe, the skeletal face, when did that start getting cemented into that image that we still have today? That is everywhere, because he's, that doesn't go away. He just keeps getting stronger. He pops up now in children's cartoons, in comic books. He's everywhere. So here's an interesting thought on it, or a few thoughts. Again, dug up by Marissa from a article called "Death Defining Personifications: The Grim Reaper versus La Grand Faucheuse. Mm, very nice, uh, thank you. <laughs> I've been practicing for minutes. By F. Wilson and L. Card, and this is from 2006, I believe. And I, I think it's a literary forum journal, Lacus, mm-hmm. L-A-C-U-S. And here's why Marissa thought this article was interesting. She goes on to describe that uh, the depictions of the Reaper through history is outlined in this article, and they theorize that today's most popular representation evolved through a, it's kind of a back and forth, a borrowing and re-representation and influences between American and English literature and art and French literature and art during this period of like, uh, you could say, the mid-19th century. And so what's happening is that everyone's influencing each other with these literary images, which I think is fascinating. It's kind of like a modern day media thing. we are all borrowing from each other now in the Western world, despite there originally being a noted difference between our Grim Reaper and France's La Grande Franchise. They refer to it in this paper as intercultural concept blending. So that's interesting. Well, why don't you read a passage from this article here then, which I think really kind of sums it up well. It is possible that
0: representations of the English concept of the Grim Reaper, with its attributes abundant in American literature, have facilitated the change in the concept of death in French culture. Edgar Allan Poe, famous for all things macabre, wrote many short stories in the early 1800s, which included skeletons and scythes. The Pit in the Pendulum describes monks wearing cloaks, as well as skeletons and a scythe in reference to time. The gold bug refers to a skull and a scythe, and a predicament refers to a scythe also in reference to time. There are many more examples in Poe's work which greatly influenced French literature in many ways during that time, particularly in French poetry. Therefore, by association, concepts such as the Reaper would have influenced French literature as well. In addition, Longfellow's collection of poetry, entitled Voices of the Night, from 1838, contains The Reaper and the Flowers, a poem which you heard part of in our opening, and you will hear in its entirety at the end of the show, read by Forrest Burgess, Mm -hmm. that clearly references the personification of death as the reaper, carrying a sickle and acting on someone else's behalf. The first stanza of The Reaper and the Flowers reads, There is a reaper whose name is Death, and with his sickle keen... He reaps the bearded grain at a breath and the flowers that grow between. Now, in this stanza, we note the personification of death as a male reaper who carries
1: a sickle and reaps grain and the flowers growing among the grain. Yeah, that imagery there is, I think, significant because it takes the grain and the flowers. It takes everything. Yes. So there you go. Did that modern image in the mid-19th century... Did that come from Edgar Allan Poe? Did it come from Dickens? These literary traditions that are getting borrowed and passed around from French literature, even though their idea of the reaper is slightly different, I think that's where this image is being born here. Because as we get to the end of the show here, what we're seeing is that it didn't really start in the ancient world. There are themes that kind of ring through. But that image that is so familiar to us, it didn't make sense to me because like death is ancient. Death is eternal. It always looked like that. No, it didn't. That's more a modern application of that. But it's scary and it's effective and it's a good image to rest on. And it's kind of a different way to look at it in the past. It's that paper we mentioned before by Kristen Moore called The Grim Reaper, Working Stiff, The Man, The Myth, The Every Day. She has some good insights into this. And we'll post this paper in our in our show notes here, but basically he's she's saying he's an average Joe. He's just somebody who has to do a job that mortals can easily relate to. He doesn't really listen to your problems, but that old phrase, "Buddy, I got a job to do." Yeah I don't need to hear your sob story. You're coming with me one way or the other, unless you can figure out how to cheat him or borrow more time, or it's not your time. And so what she says here is in her paper, we do not necessarily associate the Grim Reaper with comfort or joy. We perceive him as shrouded by an air of foreboding mystery, as heavy as the dark hooded cloak he wears. The great scythe he often carries contributes to this disturbing image, reminding us that he's also widely known as the harvester of souls. And we don't really perceive his task as happy or lighthearted, hence the word grim, but he inspires a certain amount of trepidation, even the most stout-hearted. Because, again, that scythe is intimidating. It's sharp. I'd be afraid of a dude on the subway carrying that. And that's what you were at one point, wasn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't really know how I
0: pulled this off. I, when I But when I lived in New York, as I've alluded to many times on the show, probably too many times. But I'd, I'd live there, I moved there about five days after 9-11 with my wife uh, because she had gotten a job there. And sometime, I guess it was a few years later, I was looking for pictures and I couldn't find any, but I found this amazing Halloween costume and it was the Grim Reaper. And I used the scythe that I mentioned that I had purchased, the antique scythe, and I put that costume on and I wore it to work on or around Halloween. And I rode the subway from the Upper West Side all the way down to Soho. Mm -hmm. with this outfit on. And what it had was, it was a big brown robe. I'm 6'2", by the way. And I had to end my, the side that I have is huge. I didn't want to hurt or cut anybody. It had a rusty blade on it. So I took black electrical tape and I taped it across the the cutting edge of it, which, you know, was dull, hadn't been sharpened in a billion years, but still it was a dangerous, rusty blade. Mm -hmm. And I got onto the train with it and rode it all the way downtown. And what it had was a black mask for my face and then red eyes that Ooh, were little dear. LEDs that would mm. glow. So they would go up and down. And, you know, it was Halloween. And in New York, you know, Halloween, it's like you can kind of do whatever you want. It's pretty great. But I had made a decision that for my trip to work, I took a vow of silence. I was not going to talk <laughs> to anybody. I wasn't going <laughs> to joke around yeah, with that's anyone. that's always great for a party. I just You're wanted to, I yeah. wanted to, well, I'm in this thing. You can't tell who I am. And I wanted to see what that was like. So I rode the train downtown and it was so amazing, the different reactions. Some people were so scared. They just moved away from me. They wouldn't get near me. You know, I had to stand because I had the sigh. I didn't sit down. And then there were other folks that wanted to take pictures with me. A ton of people stopped and took pictures with me. And I stood and I posed for the pictures. And they would take the picture and they would laugh and try to make a joke and try to get me to laugh. And I wouldn't do it because I wanted mm. them to feel weird. <laughs> I don't yeah. know it's like a weird yeah. thing. But then I got to my office and there's a service elevator that I need to go up. And there's a guy I would see there every day because most of the time, 99% of the time, I would ride my bike. And I knew him really well. He was, you know, he's in that union of the, the guys that work mm-hmm. in the buildings and run the service elevators, an old building. And I came up to the service elevator and he wouldn't let me in. <laughs> Because <laughs> he didn't know who I was, and he was like, "No, buddy, you're not coming in here." And I was like, "I didn't say anything." And Finally, I had to break my vow of silence. So I was like, "Dude, it's Scott. It's Scott." Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, he's like, come on in, man. This costume's great, you know." So he let me in, and I uh, went up. Oh, I went dear. up to work, but well, the, it was yeah. weird. I think what was really interesting for me, and I still have that costume. I wish I had it here. It's in storage right now. But what was weird for me was the difference. Some people were like, "Oh, that's great. I want to take a picture with the Grim Reaper," and other yeah. people really were like moving away. Almost as though they thought I was the dude. Better safe than sorry.
1: Yeah. That's interesting in that how people reacted to you. And, you know, New York, there's a ton of different cultures. We don't all take death or have an image like that the same. But people get the idea. Now, even though our cultures are different and how we perceive that in our characters, and uh, we mentioned at the top of the show just some names. We don't have time to get into all that, but I thought this idea from this paper sums it up very well. Now, this is also quoting another author here of the seminal book, Western Attitudes Towards Death from the Middle Ages to the Present. Aries, the author, proposes that fear of death did not really arise until the 20th century when dying was removed from the home, sanitized and made unseen and unseeable. In that sense, for Arias, the modern fear of death is really a fear of the unknown. He writes... In a world of change, the traditional attitude toward death appears inert and static. The old attitude in which death was bore, was both familiar and near, evoking no great fear or awe, offers too marked a contrast to ours, where death is so frightful that we dare not utter its name. For Arias, this, quote, household sort of death, unquote, of the past was tame death, and today's death, with its accompanying fear, is wild. All right, before we wrap up tonight's show, we wouldn't be
0: doing what we do here at Astonishing Legends if we didn't actually talk about some modern day
1: stories that have rumors of being connected to the Grim Reaper even today. Hey, like the last line I said, uh, let's hear some fearful, wild stories. So, one of the first modern day stories we want to tell, actually, I guess it started out on Reddit and it's based on
0: a photograph that was taken at some point during the 80s. And there was a Redditor whose name was Zombie Gandalfi. And if you look up like Grand Canyon and Grim Reaper, you can find this all over the internet. We're actually referring to an article that Dana wrote from Week and Weird, which by the way, the Week and Weird guys, they have a traveling museum, which you can follow on Twitter, the Para Museum, I believe it is. They are right now, probably tonight, pulling into Atchison, Kansas. They're going to be there this weekend. Yeah. And the museum is uh, full of haunted objects. So go check that out if you're anywhere near Atchison, Kansas, where we were for the Amelia
1: Earhart Festival. Yeah, go get spooked. Go, uh, get spooked. go they get spooked. they got some your, great yeah, stuff in there. Go get yourself uh, possessed and haunted.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we've exchanged emails with them. We've been meaning to have them on the show for a while. But they're, like us, so crazy busy. It's like every time we email each other, it's three months to between responses. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but anyway, on their uh, website, if you look up... Grim Reaper and Grand Canyon, there's this photo you see. And the Redditor had sent it in because he had some family members, his uncle and uh, some buddies, I guess, were on a road trip and they did like everybody does. And they stopped at the Grand Canyon. One of the members of the party went out and stood out right on the edge of a rock outcropping for a photo, which we do not recommend. I've been to Grand Canyon several times, extremely dangerous, but uh, Mm -hmm. that's what this guy did. People fall in it every year. And uh, he's standing there in the picture, and they took the photo, they took it home, and this is a actual photograph, not a digital photograph. They came back to uh, develop the picture. And it's funny, I was looking at this photo, and I feel like I know sort of the area that it's in. Yeah. They said at this time of year, you can see snow on the ground. Yeah. Which I think was probably November or December, maybe, that this photo was taken. And one of the things they pointed out was that there weren't many people there because it was so cold. Yeah. And in the area they were at, they said there was nobody. So they look at this picture, the guy standing on the edge of the cliff, and then there's a, a bush behind him, or a tree I should say, the sort of low-lying evergreen that is all around that area that's got thick
1: It's very branches. thick. Yeah. It's not like there's a big trunk and then branches up 10 feet in the air. Yeah. It is more like a bush. It's, it's more
0: like a tall bush and yeah, but, but it is it's a tree. Really dense.
1: The point here is that you wouldn't be walking under it normally and you no. would not pop out from it. Right, which is exactly what this cloaked tall,
0: pale figure is doing in the background. It's standing kind of back in the tree, or it looks like it is anyway. Yeah. Maybe it's behind it. But it's standing back in there, and it appears to be tall. It appears to be extremely pale, almost albino in appearance. It has a hood on, and you can see that what it's wearing goes either nearly to the ground or to the ground, depending on where it's standing. And it does look like a semblance of what we today think of as the Grim Reaper. And then on (laughs) top of that, it's staring right into the camera, which is a good, I would say, 50 feet away at least because the person who took the picture is on another outcropping. Right. And they didn't see this thing or person until they got the picture developed. And by all accounts, they were the only ones in the area and there was no one there when the picture was taken.
1: Right. If this photo is real, here's my rationale of it. One, this guy is huge. It's a humanoid face. We should point that out. It's not skeletal. Yes. It's very pale looking, but he kind of looks young to me, like a kind of a dude in his twenties. Yeah. An odd looking dude, very pale, but you can clearly make out a mouth, nose, dark, beady eyes. It's a very humanoid looking face, but he proportionally just looks strange compared to the guy standing at the very edge of the cliff which if he turned around and saw this guy standing there it might be enough to scare him off into oblivion and his I own know. death maybe, maybe that's what this maybe he's waiting maybe he's waiting for that he's waiting we, by the
0: way we talked about how he it appears as a warning in some circumstances yeah, sometimes and maybe yeah. this is a warning dude it's like, you are d- yeah that's no, not where you want to
1: take a picture i'm a little far to reach out and grab you yeah and guess what you're standing on snow and ice probably not the smartest thing to do, but people do it. We we do things like that. And you don't know what's below it. Still, if it's a 30 foot drop, you're going to get banged up and hurt.
0: By the way, we have a copy of the picture on our webpage for this. And then a link also to the Week and
1: Weirds blog post on it. Yeah. I was going to say the logic of this photo is that this thing's kind of materialized in the thick brush. If this thing, if this person, if it's a person playing a prank, it's a one, it's a very weird prank. Yeah. Creepy prank to do, or that it's weird that he's just already there. And the guy standing at the edge, the tourist, would have noticed him, because you'd have to walk by him. You know what I'm saying? To get to that spot where he's at. Because we've been there before. We went to uh, Scott and I and Jerry from the What's Gotten Into You episode, uh, where the Grand Canyon, so walking up to these edges here where people can go, it's a little bit of a trail, but this guy is just there in this thick brush, kind of half materialized in it, it looks to me. So it's just very weird. Whatever it is, it shouldn't be there. Another story we wanted to share, which was one that the
0: research corps came across when we were looking for modern day tales, has to do with a story that turned up in April of 2016. And it was this uh, woman, this young woman, Kirsty Clinch in Warminster, Wiltshire, England. She was using Snapchat to take a picture of her favorite fish and chips restaurant <laughs> called Crime de la Cade. I and, love that name. <laughs> yes. And so she took this picture of it. And there's an alley right next to the building that this restaurant's in. And when you look in the alley, and she did not notice this until after she got home and looked at the picture, there again is a dark hooded figure with seemingly very pale skin leaning up or standing right against the building. So here's the freakier part of that. Mm -hmm. When you zoom out and you look at... The wider shot, which you can't see in her picture, but what you can do is see it on Google Street View. Yeah. If you go to Crim de la Cade, which is sadly permanently closed. Oh. Right across from the alley, from where this guy or spirit or being is waiting, is a funeral home. (laughs) And I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, you know, it's just a guy, you know. And there's some of these pictures are... Not particularly great. It's real dark and you can't see anything, but there are some higher resolution, lighter versions of her yeah. photo. And when you see it a little bit clearer, it is kind of freaky. And the funeral yeah. home is actually called the cooperative funeral care. Uh-huh. That's just on the other side of it. And I've actually had the street view of that pulled up on my computer for a couple of days now as we've been working on this episode. Yeah. And at first I was not really thinking... That it was anything more than just a person standing in the alley. But the more that I look at the picture from Street View, and I'm going to snapshot that and include that with our pictures for this episode. The more I look in that alley where that thing was standing, and it's not in the Street View, mm-hmm. obviously, at mm-hmm. all, I do get kind of a weird, bad feeling, yeah, uh, which yeah. is strange. Because at first I was like, I was poo-pooing this story. Yeah. But there's something about it that does feel really bizarre yeah. in that alley between Crim de la Côte and... The cooperative funeral care. (laughs)
1: Well, that's on the other side of the alley, right? Next door. Yeah. He's probably taking a smoke break. The idea here, it's not as weird as maybe the Grand Canyon photo where you see that guy. That's a very clear photo where you can see the face very, very clearly. Because that's more of that scenario where if that guy is not with that party or, you know, if he's just visiting, he shouldn't be there. It's a weird place to be. Almost a natural kind of like standing in the brush. Here, yeah, he 's standing you know right outside, uh, I guess, around the corner in the alley, so it's not that weird what's weird is that his face that could be skeletal, more so, or just very pale with dark eye sockets, and again, it's that scariness of the cloak with the hood with the cowl on it, and the fact that she did not notice him standing there now, that happens all the time, people don't notice uh, who's standing around them, but she 's looking right at it. she is focused on the shop that she's been to and she loves. There is a very strange dude standing there dressed very strangely with very pale, weird skin, a face. Again, it's not skeletal, but you can't really tell from the photo. But I, I found a better shot of that on uh, indexwiltshire.co.uk. And the whole thing just gives you a creepy feeling. So I, I can understand that. So I don't know if the guy should be there or not. I mean, again, he's a very creepy looking weird dude with some uh, really unhealthy looking skin. There's something wrong with this photo. That's about all I can say about it. It's like you can't dismiss it as being something that shouldn't be there. Of course, it's right off the street, but it's the vibe of the photo. There's something kind of wrong with this.
0: Well, yeah. And in the article that you found, she says, I looked over at the wall and saw it just staring at us, not moving. My boyfriend was like, come on, let's go. But I couldn't stop looking at it. We were laughing nervously because we couldn't figure the dark image out. We just ran off after that as it was a little freaky and we couldn't figure out what we had seen. We zoomed into the pic after screenshotting it from Snapchat later and we freaked out even more. That's from the Index Wiltshire article that Forrest was just talking about. Mm -hmm. So they had that feeling in person.
1: Yeah, she goes on to say, uh, "Kirsty, I believe in the supernatural. Too many weird things have happened for me not to. Maybe it's a thing us humans get, a mind trick that makes us believe we see things because of the amount of rubbish on TV these days. But I have the picture to prove something was defiantly stood there. What it was, I will never know. Only your eyes can judge that. I've had weird experiences in the past also that make me believe that there definitely is something. Why the figure showed itself to us, I will never know. All right, this next story actually comes to us from one of our own, one of our researchers,
0: a new researcher in the Astonishing Research Corps. We're going to call her Tiva. That's her nickname, and Mm -hmm. that's what she's going to go by. And uh, she's a well-educated medical professional, let's just say that. And she has this story that she tells from a hospital that she used to work in. The very first hospital I worked in was special. I don't want to say haunted because that implies evil or malevolence. Maybe it's better to say that the veil between this world and the other side was worn thin there. The hospital was an older building and an even older town that had a history of trouble and violence, civil war and such. I think that it's safe to say that the whole town is just a touch off, like the shadows and movements that you catch in the corner of your eye aren't always the right shape. For an innocuous Missouri town, it is eerie and unsettling, at least to me, but I digress. This hospital had its own resident reaper, though we called him the man in black or the preacher. He was well known to the hospital staff, especially to those of us who worked at night. He was very tall, well over six foot tall, and was dressed in an old-fashioned dusty black suit, like the preachers wear in Old West movies, and a flat-brimmed black hat. His face was ashen and gaunt, with sunken eyes and cheeks, and it was expressionless. If you can imagine death as a man, it would be the preacher. You knew exactly what he was the moment you saw him. When we saw him, it was only just for a brief moment, and he was gone. But it was always the same. He would be standing in the doorway into a patient's room, just staring into the room. Every time he showed up, Person in that room died. He didn't come for every patient that passed away, or maybe we didn't see him, but every patient that he visited passed away. There were times when it was a relief to see him. Those of us who worked with the hospice patients that came to the ward saw him more frequently than the rest of the nurses, and often it was a welcome sight. He was our ally at that moment, but he was also our enemy. It was the worst thing to see him in the doorway of the young, or young-at-heart patient, or the patient that was supposed to be going home in the morning. We would park the crash cart by the door to the room, hoping that we could keep the inevitable from happening, but we never won those fights. Not everyone saw him, and I don't know why. There are some nurses who've worked there for 20 years who never saw him, but enough of us did. It wasn't just the staff who saw him either. Patients and visitors would sometimes mention that they saw an odd, old-time preacher, or ask about the man all in black that they saw in the doorway. I haven't seen him since I left that hospital, but I have no doubt that he's still there. I don't think that he was good or evil. Death is just inevitable, and that is what makes it so scary. As Horace said, Omnes una manet nox, the same night awaits us all. So that's interesting to me because there, it's not necessarily the Grim Reaper, but it is something. It isn't maybe more like the Angel of Death. It's something that's showing up. What I love about the way she tells that story is that not everyone can see it, but those that do are just coexisting with it. They're not trying to prove or not prove it's there. It's just this thing that is part of the hospice care in that particular hospital. And she thinks it's still there. This next story, and the last story of the night, comes to us from a book called Extraordinary Encounters, an encyclopedia of extraterrestrials and otherworldly beings. This was written by Jerome Clark, and uh, one of our new members of the Astonishing Research Corps, Mike, actually found this reference, and this this is a pretty cool story. The only thing I want to say about it before we get into it, it was actually written by Mark Chorvinsky who was the editor, publisher, and founder of Strange Magazine, which was a Mm. pretty cool rag, and he was a much-beloved figure there. From what I can tell, Uh, we found a memoriam for him online. We'll have that in the show notes. But he's the one that actually wrote this article, which appeared in Encounters with the Grim Reaper, Strange Magazine number 18, in the summer, and it came
1: out in 1997. A young boy claimed that the Grim Reaper had saved his life when he was eight years old. Dennis Wardrop was skating on a pond when the ice gave way under his feet and he plunged into the frigid water. He tried desperately to find a way out as his lungs filled with the water. He felt something poking him and grabbed onto it as it lifted him to safety. After he wiped the water from his eyes, he was terrified to learn that he was holding the blunt end of a long scythe in the hands of a tall, large figure with the face of a decomposing corpse. It wore a black robe and a hood over its head. Inside the eye sockets were swirling whirlpools of black and dimly glowing reds. An odor of death permeated the air. Perhaps sensing his fear, the figure assured him, whether telepathically or orally is not explained, that he would be okay that it was not yet his time. The boy collapsed from exhaustion. When he revived soon thereafter, the figure was gone, and he felt curiously warm, even though it was only 14 degrees above zero. Chorvinsky writes, I have investigated particularly intriguing cases in which the Reaper has been seen by multiple witnesses, and I know of incidents in which the Reaper was reported to have actually healed injuries and assisted the ill and the dying. Mark Trevinsky, 1997, Encounters with the Grim Reaper, from Strange Magazine, Volume 18, Summer. That story is chilling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think one thing
0: that's interesting about it, though, is that's one of the few stories we find where he's helping somebody. He helped that
1: poor child. Well, we said this earlier in the show, is that one concept of the Grim Reaper is that he's not the judge. He's not there to decide your fate at the moment. Your fate's already been written. He's there to do a job. And so in this case, it may not have been that boy's time, but he's there. That happened on his watch. Yeah. Anytime you're close, it's his watch. And in this case, he was there to aid fate. And uh, he gave some comfort. Like, I I know I'm freaky looking. Don't freak out too bad. It's not your time. Sorry about my corpse face. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about the corpse face. Let me warm you up a bit. That was interesting too. Yeah. Is that he got a little comfort and, and aid. If that story's true. What I like about this story is that most people who see the Grim Reaper don't live to tell about it. Because when it's your time and you do see him, He's probably the last thing you're ever going to see.
0: That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Astonishing Legends.
1: We'll be back next week with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hey, this is Luke. My name is... Hi. That's Billy. (laughs) Whoever's listening to this, you guys just do a phenomenal job, and we're just the biggest fans. We just want to say thank you guys, and you don't have to use this. It would be cool if you did, but you don't have to use this. And don't go licking any UFOs, okay?
0: Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks
1: to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at Patreon.com
0: AstonishingLegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
1: The Reaper and the Flowers by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow There is a reaper whose name is Death, and, with his sickle keen, he reaps the bearded grain at a breath, and the flowers that grow between. Shall I have not that is fair, saith he? Have naught but the bearded grain? Though the breath of these flowers is sweet to me, I will give them all back again. He gazed at the flowers with tearful eyes. He kissed their drooping leaves. It was for the lord of paradise. He bound them in his sheaves. My lord has need of these flowerets gay, the reaper said, and smiled. Dear tokens of the earth are they, where he was once a child. They shall all bloom in fields of light, transplanted by my care, and saints upon their garments white these sacred blossoms wear. And the mother gave, in tears and pain, the flower she most did love. She knew she should find them all again in the fields of light above. Oh, not in cruelty, Not in wrath, the reaper came that day. "'Twas an angel visited the green earth and took the flowers away.